You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens. (laughs) I'm back in Philly, (laughs) y'all. And I come back from a week-long vacation in Houston, which is my um, hometown. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, but I grew up in Houston most of my life. As you all know, myself and my fiance, Mr. Johnson, we spent a week in Houston with family, celebrating, having a lot of great things. I come home and I realize that my fire uh, alarm has not been replaced. But I think that's because in my, um, in my spot, I think I told them. I don't know if I wasn't sure if I told them to replace it while I was going or not, because sometimes I want people in my house when I'm not here. But um, if you hear any special effects, that's what it is. <laughs> but the one thing I love about going home, it's like, well, first of all, when I'm not at home. So like, I do this thing where when I leave and I know I'm going for like days. Okay. So if it's like a two day little thing, if we're going to Trenton or, or, you know, for two days or something like that in Jersey, I don't, I'm not really anxious or crazy about how I do my house. But when I'm going for like over four days, I do some things. So one of the things that I do is I put the, um, what I do? I, first of all, I wash my sheets, everything, like all of my clothes, like every single, like, anything clothes all the trash gets taken out like all of it um i even clear out the refrigerator because i'm like very into like i get a lot of organic food and so you know if you leave organic food out your fridge starts stinking if you don't get that stuff out of there so i take i clear out everything and um that's been you know the good thing about it then we come home the house is like perfection but then you realize damn i don't have anything in this house like i got an uber eats or whatever so i have to and then it's like memorial day weekend so like nothing's open so i have to wait until like after this weekend is over so i could be able to then you know restock my fridge but for now it's it's gonna be some good uber eats and some caviar over here um but yeah i'm back and was catching up on everything you know even though it was a week of vacation technically it wasn't i mean it was vacation um, in the sense that I was away and I felt it. I felt the weightness. Okay. Like I felt the difference. Because when I came back to Philly, this weather, I mean, I was in Houston where the weather was in the 70s and at times the 80s, it was getting a little hot. But then I come back to Philly and it's like completely like, what, what the hell? <laughs> so I left with, you know, shorts and a beach shirt, came back with shorts and a beach shirt. I had to take out one of my travel, um, what's those things? Those travel, um, little blankets or whatever. I had to cover myself up. It was, a, it was a lot, but I mean, it wasn't that, it wasn't that bad as far as like, I wasn't outside standing, but it was just like, oh my goodness, this is nuts. So getting used to that was an adjustment. And then the first thing I did was I ran home and like watched the finale of, um, Mayor Easttown, which I'll talk about later in depth on the show, but I just... That was the first thing I did. It was late as hell, but I had to make sure I, I watched that finale. And I did not look at Twitter or Facebook because people was just dropping spoilers. And I'm just like, uh, come on, you all. You know, there's like a 24-hour, 40-hour rule. I don't know what the rule is on spoilers nowadays because everyone has their own version. But my rule of thumb is 48 hours. Some people say 24 hours. But I'm like, eh, you know, people got to work or something. I believe that if you're a real fan of a show and you're watching intently, I will give you a 48-hour grace period. 
used to be 24, but mm, I'm going to give you 48 hours. If you don't watch that show within 48 hours, if I end up dropping a spoiler or something like that, that is, you know, listen, it's fair game. So fortunately, I didn't have to wait that long. I watched it and oh my goodness, but I will talk about that. So let me see. So I want to talk about this real quick because I want to get into some of the stuff that was going on. And 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 this is just some housekeeping, you know, just some notes. Because sometimes I do this sometimes just general bouts about what I learned about vacation, black people and things like that. So one of the things that I have learned. Oh, also sidebar. So I did not realize that I have like allergies, but not like heavy allergies. But like when I went to Houston I was, I realized that like I was in Katy, which is like a suburb of like on the outskirts of Houston now, but like there are so many trees in Texas and so much, so many flowers and pollen or whatever. For whatever reason, I got real sneezy when I was in Texas. But when I come back to Philly, it's calming down. I realized, hmm, cause you know, Houston, you know, Texas is like really outdoorsy. And I was like, oh, so I'm recovering from having like, a, like sneezing excessively and then when i came back to Philly, i said that's right philly which are lack luster non-trees existent <laughs> like your lack of pollen i mean there are people who have allergies that probably do but like i feel like compared to texas like i don't know like philly I, i've never really sneezed or had like any type of like small periods of allergy so i am finally like recovering from whatever this allergy thing i had when i was in texas but i also think i was in different land different heat different everything and it just it just did something for me. So now I'm coming from that down. So, you know, that's that's why I sound a little bit nauseal. But I'm fine. I'm completely fine. But yeah, like coming to Philly, I was like, oh, I'm in my natural habitat. Look, Philly's now my natural habitat now. That's wow. And I think also, too, it's been a long time since I've been to Houston in the spring and summertime-esque vibe. Like normally I'm always coming home for the holidays. So I just realized it's like the first time maybe... T- maybe 10 years since I've been back to Texas in a summertime, like springtime. It's been like 10 years. Every time, other any other time was always winter. I haven't been back to what would be 11 years. Oh my goodness. It's been 11 years because I haven't been back for a Texas quote unquote summer since, yeah, probably since 2010, 2011, maybe. It's been like 10, nine years. Um, because normally I would always stay, like whenever I went the summer, I used to always stay in, 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 um, I used to always stay in Philly or, or wherever I was. Um, so I never really came back home. So it's, it's interesting, but like, it's real. And also I'm about to turn 30. So they say, apparently when you turn different ages, like when you get to different decades, you formulate new taste buds and allergies and whatever the thing is. Um, so far I haven't had any, I'm I'm not like allergic to anything that I know of like shellfish or strawberries and things like that. So I'm like, as a foodie, I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. But you know, if I get the snivels for stuff like pollen or lint, I mean, I don't mind that, but I can't lose my like taste buds. (laughs) Um, so yeah, but in a nutshell, there's been so much like going on, uh, you know, so much going on in general based on just the climate. Like Philly has been doing a lot lately and I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to figure out, damn, well, what, what what did I miss? But I didn't really miss much because the internet, the internet, I realized that I could do so much. I could make people think I'm in Philly without making them think I'm in Philly. 
which is a good or bad thing. But then part of me is like, I've realized that the next time I go on quote unquote vacation, the next time I go on vacation, it, it, it's going to be serious. Like I'm probably going to have to something like, so what was, okay. So what the plan was before I get into the tea about what happened in Texas and get into Philly, cause Oh, trust, this is one of those episodes where we're going to talk about a lot of things. Okay. We have some catching up to do and I have some things I need to say, but my plan initially, initially was that I haven't taken like a real, like physical, like vacation. Like I normally, you know, I've always said, if you listen to previous episodes, that I believe that vacation is a state of mind and that when you're doing what you love, it, it, it doesn't really feel like vacation or whatever the case might be. But I, but I don't know. I felt like, you know, every couple of years, I feel this sense of like, I need like some spatial distance and, you know, ability not to do anything. So I thought. So for me, the plan was that I was going to not write anything. I, I had committed myself to not doing the podcast, right? I was just going to give my undivided attention to whatever I was doing that week. Okay. So the plan was last week was I wasn't supposed to write anything and I wasn't going to do my podcast. I was, you know, social media, social media, that's, you know, whatever it's life. Because I mean, some people use social media for different things. I, I can see social media sometimes as just like a part of like you know, drinking water and everything else that I do. So I don't look at it like this, I got to disconnect, you know, like, I don't know. I, I don't find it that way. But some people do, whatever. Everybody has their own methods. But at least for me, I wasn't going to do writing and I wasn't going to do any podcasting because that does require thought time. Like, I put thought behind what I write. I think about what I write. And I didn't want to use those muscles last week. That was the plan. And also, too, I was going to, at least in some situations, modify. But last week was a heavy week, right? You had the, the Tulsa, remembering the Tulsa uh, Black Wall Street bombing that happened at Mass Secure, that devastating thing that happened 100 years ago, right? So people are talking about that. You also had the one-year anniversary of George Floyd shooting, uh, the murder, right, of his, this, this Black father who, who lost his life from extrajudicial police violence, right? Um, then you just had other shit that was just coming up, right? And just stuff that just failed. So it was like, I wouldn't say it wasn't perfect timing because at the end of the day, there's all, and, and if you're a journalist and you're doing real news, right? There's never a week technically that something's not happening. So you just have to just pick a week and figure it out. But I mean, for me, it just was Memorial Day weekend, time to get in with that, my brother's graduation. And I just wanted to just say, you know, I'm going to chill. That being said, that did not happen. I did not do what I thought I was going to do. Now, I don't feel guilt because I really did have a vacation. I did enjoy a lot of escape from some things. And some stuff I purposely chose to. But I've recognized that some of my followers and some folks that are just around, okay, really did not respect my decision to, to chill on some fronts. Like, I, you know, by default, couldn't resist engaging somewhat while I was on vacation, Right. Because there was some stuff that was interesting to me. So we'll talk about Stake 48 and some of my thoughts since this shit first hit the fan. That, you know, you can't... Stake 48... Okay, so let me be clear. So the situation with Stake 48, for those who know already, I did write about it twice. Um, But that wasn't hard to write about because those were just things that just naturally flowed out of me. And so for me, I didn't feel like it it violated my vacation as much because it just was naturally something that I had thoughts about. And I actually enjoyed writing about it and I actually enjoyed talking about it because it was just such a 
an important yet petty yet there was so, it was so many it was so much depth in that that conversation that I just enjoyed talking about and I enjoyed writing about it so it didn't feel like work but there are some things that I just was like this is annoying this is stupid and I don't want to talk about it. I'm on a fucking vacation and fake 48 was leisure for me like talking about that was petty leisure that was fun like I had fun talking about it and writing about it and I'm fascinated by some of the stuff that I learned from people but that being said Vacation is a choice. What I what I thought for myself for vacation was that normally when I'm not quote unquote on vacation, which is a lot of the time I am having to engage with constant stuff that sometimes I don't want to talk about, but I feel like it's necessary. But vacation, in my mindset, was if I was going to do quote unquote work, I wanted to do the things I wanted to do that was a gift, behold. So I actually wrote more than I would typically do in a week because I did the Sean King. I, I wrote that Sean King lawsuit story for the Daily Beast which I was already working on before vacation, but, you know, it kind of came out the same week. Um, I had already, you know, I wrote about George Floyd for the Gria, which I love writing for them. And that was just, 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 just work to just do. And it was necessary. And I wanted to, you know, pay homage to George Floyd. And George Floyd is, you know, he, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a Houston, Texas guy. He was an H-Town man. So there was some celebrations, some remembrance about him in Houston. So there was a connection there, but that just felt like, that didn't feel like anything. But there was some, but I think one of the things that I need to tell people and I want people to understand is that journalists, public officials, celebrities, whoever, whoever, everybody is a human. Everybody has their boundaries. Everybody has their things that they just, you know, you got to respect that. And I think sometimes people get caught up in seeing people like, you know, I do like praise, right? I, I appreciate people giving me my roses and give me compliments and things of that nature, but what I've also learned and what I've often, oftentimes have, have had to recognize, and I'm getting better at it, is that I am not going to be everything for everybody every time. And that's okay. And I am not going to do what everybody wants me to do, how they want it, when they want it. I want everybody to remind themselves that Ernest Me Empire earnest media empire. I make the decisions on the things I choose to talk about. I make the decisions on the things I want to write about. And I make the decisions on when I want to turn on, turn up, and turn off. And I think sometimes, right, you have people that do care about you, do like you, right? But do they respect you? And I think I learned this week that admiration without respect is just as bad as just just as bad as being rude, right? Because you can be you can admire people, you can like people, but if you don't respect them, it doesn't matter. And I think that that was something I learned because I've had situations where I I'm like, oh, do I do I say that this is uncomfortable? Do do I say you know no? Do I tell people hey chill out? You know, I always think, you know, I do admire my followers and I do admire people who admire my work. And sometimes I juggle that balance of that. Sometimes I feel like, yo, you're kind of being a little demanding. You're kind of doing You're kind of crossing that line a little bit. I need you to just like, hey, hey, like you're projecting a lot on me. <laughs> and a lot of people project a lot on me. White people, black people, lots of next people, folks that just who follow my work, read my stuff, they, they tell me what I should talk about and what I should do. I'm like, hey, th- listen, one of the things I love about being an independent black media mogul is that I like writing the things I want to write about, the things I feel comfortable writing about, the stuff I feel 
comfortable talking about. There's a lot of things going on in the world. And some of that shit ain't just none of my business. <laughs> some of that shit is not for me to talk about because, you know, for, for whatever reason, I don't come from that place of experience. And so it's important to recognize that educators, writers, journalists, critical thinkers, whatever, that everything, we shouldn't be the arbitrators of everything. And I don't ever try to be. I Let me be clear. I talk about the stuff that I can relate to, that I feel comfortable talking about this from my experience. So if you want me to talk about issues in the Middle East and, and, and things of that nature, hey, you know, I'm not the expert. Have I had experiences in the Middle East? Have I, have I done some work? Have I been in some spaces? You Google me. I have. I absolutely have. But there's a limited scope on what, how far I feel comfortable discussing those things when I need to take that time and energy to, to delve into it. And in some cases, I see other people doing that work far better than me, right? And that's because that's their heart. That's their passion. So I would rather support and steer people to those people than, than try to be like, I can be the spokesperson for this and, and I can be the person to talk about this. No. And so when there are things that I choose not to talk about, don't say, did you see this? Did you? I, I, I most likely saw it. Let me, let me explain this to y'all. <laughs> Journalists get memos, wires, information every morning. It's called the morning fucking report. And every journalist that I know knows what the morning report is. The morning report isn't a direct thing that says morning report. Morning report is that you get a barrage of emails around the hours of 7 to 10 a.m. And there's just a bunch of shit. Press releases, uh, uh, official statements from the government. And you get all kinds of stuff. And... In those statements, you get all kind of information about trends, patterns, incidents, issues, everything. And also, when you're someone like myself who's a, you know high profile, everybody is sending you some video that went viral. Everybody is sending you some screenshots. Everybody is sending you something. And you know, for me, I'm not complaining because that's just part of the job. But what I will say is, for those people who send the, did you see this? And just because I don't respond doesn't mean I don't care. Just because I don't weigh in doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. I just choose where to channel my fucking energy because I am 29 and I do have family to live for and people to, to work for and I do have a life and I give so much of my time to the public that there are times when I want to retreat to just, you know, my relationship, my friendships, my family my own personal goals and aspirations. I have other things to do, y'all. <laughs> and I think some people think that, I, that I'm here just to serve like some, you know, person that's working somewhere and I'm, you know, customer service, 24-hour customer service. I am not. And I won't. And I think often black people, black creatives, black intellectuals, people do any of this type of public-facing work oftentimes are scared to tell people that. Well, I believe that if I lose a bunch of followers of people because I tell people I have boundaries, some people aren't really my followers to begin with. I believe that my followers and those who in mean well for me will res be more respectful of, hey, let me be mindful that this is a human being, not a robot, not a machine. And that while they do sometimes give and over-deliver and over-perform at times, they still got life. So I, I think this vacation really gave me some 
a, a, gave me some thought and perspective. Like it was a very reflective vacation, but it was a very necessary vacation. Like again, because it gave me perspective about how to set boundaries in the future. Because I'm going to tell you all right now, the week of October 11th to October 18th, that is, of course, my wedding week. That's also my birthday week at the same time. We're not doing it. I don't give a fuck what is happening in Philadelphia. If Mayor Kenny resigns, okay, sure. But I, listen, listen. I, you better hope I even look at the damn message. I'm completely taking off that week. I am turning 30. I am getting married. It ain't happening. Don't DM me. If it ain't a congrats, a uh, 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 happy birthday, or uh, whatever, don't even send me nothing that's going on in the streets. I don't care. Just not. I'm just not. I'm just going to keep going. I don't care. Don't send it to me. Won't read it. If you do a, hey, did you see this? Or a, I know you're on vacation, but fuck out of here. If I'm on vacation, first of all, let's back this up. If you tell the person I know you're on something, but that means you should even send it. Don't even send it. Respect people's boundaries. That's the one thing I will tell you about me. I have worked in business, this, in this industry for years. When my colleagues, people I work with tell me they're taking a break or vacation, I don't send a motherfucking thing. You know what I do? I go figure it the fuck out or I chill out, but I leave that person alone. When I get those emails that say so-and-so's out till Tuesday, you ain't getting nothing from me until I'll be nice Thursday. Okay. I respect people. I, I you got to because it's because people need their break. Lord knows I need a vacation, like a like a nice spread. Because it ain't never gonna end. You know, when you think about it, like if you're in this news business, there's always gonna be something. And people really will not respect because people think that you're a robot. Don't assign me any work. Don't assign me any labor. Respect my emotional labor. Respect my 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 entire space. Don't assign any black person to do something that's not elected official that's working the clock. Okay? Because let me tell you what journalists aren't. Journalists are not organizers. Journalists are not lawyers. Journalists are not social workers. Journalists are not therapists. Journalists are not consultants. Journalists are not cheerleaders. Journalists are not, you know, service workers and providers. Journalists are, are truth seekers and truth finders. They are people who seek the truth. They are people that give the truth. They are people that are public servants, giving people credible information and news. That is what we do. That's all that we do. Anything else is a cherry on top of the cake. Period. And so there's a lot of people that project a lot of their beliefs about you know what what I am and what I do. You know, we 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 gotta respect we we gotta respect people's boundaries, it, regardless of how much you admire. If you admire a person, you'll give them space. You respect their abilities. You expect their times. I can't listen. <laughs> you you know it's funny. Life is funny because you you say I want a lot of followers, and then you get a lot of followers, and you realize oh my goodness, what comes a lot of followers? A lot of extra. But I wouldn't. You know, traded for the world. I'm very grateful that people um, concern themselves with me and care about me or engage with what I do because that's what, you know, writers write to be read. I mean, that's why I write. 
I write to be read. I write also to express thoughts, but I also write for people to read. If, I, if people don't read what I write as a professional, why the fuck am I doing it? <laughs> but that being said, some people get a little too comfortable. And I need to, I am going to be promising myself to be more proactive in resetting the womb and pushing back more. Because I think part of it is, and I'm not blaming myself because people just need to get manners, but I do sometimes feel like in the past, I just let a lot of stuff slide, just to slide. And I didn't realize how irked I was when I, I, I didn't say no, or I didn't say chill, or I didn't say, hey, I'm doing something right now. Especially some of y'all who be messaging at two o'clock at night. Come on now. So... I just want to lay down that housekeeping because <laughs> I think it's important, right? So what happened at vacation? Vacation was, was, was fabulous. I mean, let me just start by saying that I love Houston, Texas because of the food. The food. We are the culinary and cultural capital of the South. Houston, Texas is. Yes, I said it. Don't listen to what they say in Atlanta. We are the cultural and culinary capital of the South. Houston, Texas is, okay? Our food is exquisite. There was food for days. And let me tell you all something, okay? There are the touristy spots and there are the spots that matter, okay? So you all get excited about this damn uh, turkey leg hut place. Real Houstonians will tell you the turkey leg hut used to be great, but now it is a tourist wash land. It's like when folks come to Phillies and we say, don't talk about Pats and Geno's because we know there's better cheesesteaks. That's how I feel about the turkey leg hut. Okay. Y'all was all like, turkey leg hut, turkey leg hut, papacitos, papacitos, papados. Okay. Yes. Let me be clear. Papados is fabulous. It is still fabulous. It is something that's beloved by Houstonians and tourists alike. Right. It is a good place. It is fun. Is it the best thing in the world? But it's a unique place enough. It's fun. You should go. I never get disappointed when I go to uh, Papa Dose. I never get disappointed when I go to Papa Dose. I, I always find it to be a very um, joyful space. Uh, fast food. Oh, my God. Loved everything. I had Whataburger again, which Whataburger still, still is the king of fast food burgers. I, I, you all like your in and outs They had an in and out in Houston. Ew. Shake Shack and all these places. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Whataburger, the truth. Um, Taco Cabana. So some of you all saw the pictures I put up of Taco Cabana on Facebook. Um, love Taco Cabana. Let me tell you why I love Taco Cabana. Let me tell you what I loved about my experience. I'm going to connect all these dots. So you all love y'all Chipotle and Cordoba and stuff on the East Coast, the Moe's, all that. Taco Cabana is the real truth, okay? Authentic Mexican food. But Fast casual. They make their own flour, their tortillas and all this stuff. They got good steak, like real steak. Not this mess that y'all do. They they just come with the flavor, the options. The, 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 oh. I mean, they have these, these shrimp tin pinko themed dishes. I mean, it's just fabulous food. And then on top of that, they had margarita fest or whatever they was having, where they was having all these different flavor margaritas and they were allowing you to take it to go. Come on, Philly. Come on, Pennsylvania. What's wrong with y'all? I mean, it was divine. The first place we went to was Taco Cabana, and we picked up some margaritas to go for the house, and they gave us a chaser to add to it. So, that's just 
Oh, I cannot begin. And then we went to a place. Uh, so my best friend, Jamarcus, came. Um, he's also from Houston, too. And he's currently, he lives in Philly um, with me and live with the whole, with everybody. So he lives in Philly. Um, and he 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 has a roommate. He lives in West Philly. I live in West Philly. Um, him and his roommate had went to Vegas the week before. And so I was like, you need to come to Houston, man, you know, because his family's in Houston and my family's in Houston. So it was like, let's make this a buddy road trip in addition to my fiance coming in, everyone else. So it was like a, it was an interesting like migration from Philly to Houston for a week and like comparing and contrasting the experiences. But we went to Los Cocos, uh, which is in Katy, which is near, there's multiple locations, but there's one near Katy Mills Mall, which is, I live in Katy now, which is again, a suburb of Houston. And we went there. Let me tell you about that happy hour. They had a 2 to 6 p.m. happy hour. Okay. And we we drank our way through that. We didn't stay for like the whole four hours. Let me clarify. But um, we went for like, like 4 to 6, 3 to 6, 4 to 6. I think it was like 4 to 6. We was in there getting our lives. And those margaritas were good margaritas. Okay. These are the ones in the big ass glasses and Oh, it was fabulous. It was divine. It was just oh, so much everything. So good. And then here's the crazy part. They let us take home margaritas to go. We bought them and took them home. So there was more for us to go. When I tell y'all this is divine, this is opulence, this is what class looks like, this is what taste looks like, I was shocked. You know? Um you know, um, I, I was completely shocked and shit was wild and it was fabulous. It was definitely fabulous. And I just, oh, this. So, yes, I just love and appreciate the uniqueness of take home liquor and things of that nature that happens at places like that. OK, let's get to the barbecue because I'm taking my stink step by step. The barbecue was phenomenal, right? So we 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 we're, you know my family does barbecue themselves, right? So we had um when I first came on we did smoked boudin and people kept asking what is boudin. Okay, let me tell you about what boudin is. Boudin is this delicious delicacy that's in the south, but like, you know, in parts of like Houston, Texas, well Houston isn't Texas, but like Houston and but all throughout Texas, but also New Orleans. So boudin is like basically it's this dirty rice, like a spicy rice, but sometimes it's a chicken, it can be seafood, it can be whatever. But normally it's like a dirty Cajun spicy rice, but it's wrapped in this sausage like casing. And you can, and it looks like, like when you buy it, right? When you buy it or whatever, it looks like sausage, but actually it's in it, the, the rice and everything's in that casing that gives that great taste. And you cook it smoked and you don't eat it like a sausage. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to, once you, once it's smoked, then you cut it in half and you split it in the middle so the rice can bust out. You can eat the rice with the crackers and everything. It's so good. So that was the first thing we had when we, you know, when we got back for dinner that night. And then of course we had the, the we had ribs and all that fabulous stuff. So it was just oh, it was so good. It was so good. I definitely ate my way through. And then Shipley's donuts is so great. And kolaches, which no one really does kolaches. So people was asking me, what are kolaches? Kolaches are like. How do I describe it? Okay, so it's a beautiful uh, dough 
And inside the dough, it's stuffed with things. So it could be stuffed with like bacon and cheese or sausage. It's like a glorified pig in a blanket, but it's not really a pig in a blanket because a pig in a blanket is a little bit smaller. But it's like a smaller hot pocket type thing, but it's breakfasty. So some people add potatoes, some people add spinach. I mean, you can do different things with it, but like it's so delicious. And um, it's like small, it's like a nice way to have a all-in-one breakfast situation with some orange juice. But kolaches are, are, are incredible. And, and I wish that Philadelphia embraced them or other places embraced them, but you guys might ruin them. But I could see a cheesesteak kolache. I could see a cheesesteak kolache. That would be fucking Philly right there. A cheesesteak kolache? If only you all knew what they were. But a cheesesteak kolache, I'm just going to trademark that if that hasn't came out yet. A Philly cheesesteak kolache, but we have to make it here in Philly. And you all have to use your own special like dough. Um, but a, a cheesesteak kolache would be would be a hit in Philadelphia. I don't know if I would eat for breakfast though, but you all have eaten you all have eaten worse. All right. So food was great. Let's get to this graduation. My brother, okay, had the ball. He had a listen. My brother can't say we didn't have a ball for him. So I have a brother. His name is Kelby. He's eighteen. He is going to Temple University. He graduated from his high school this week officially. We went to the graduation. First of all, everybody named Mama was at that graduation. We had a football field. It had to be over a thousand people there, over t- over two thousand people. It was it was nuts. But he had a great time. He's very like one of those Joe Cool type kids where he's like. If you don't look at him carefully, he looks like he's like doesn't have any emotion or he doesn't like, but he's such a very like seldom like he's I wanna, mm, he's definitely opposite of me. He's not like very super animated, but at the same time, not like not fully aware. Like he's just so chill and laid back. Um and such a great guy. Uh we had a great time. I mean, we we carried on. I mean, we do a lot. I mean, graduations in this in this family is a big deal. Like all those type of things. We really over celebrate and i don't even know if this thing is over celebrating this day and age because like this kid went through four years of i mean he went to college but he i mean high school and and i mean he did all this during a pandemic he did all this through all of these crazy things was able to make it out on top and do well so it was just only right that by the time he hit graduation he was going to celebrate heavily so we had the first night, he what they did a thing called lockdown. This thing that they do with the kids, where they have this like they stay at some building, all of them for like overnight or something. I never heard of this. This is that new shit. But they do this traditional thing at this high school where they do a lockdown where they all go to like one place or whatever, and they play games and hang out and stuff for like hours on end, and they all stay in the same space at a you know they don't go anywhere or anything. I, I he had fun with it so. We had a seafood boil, which was over the top. Um, the seafood boil was like on a Friday. And with the seafood boil, it was fancy. I mean, we had the crabs. My, my stepfather, um, he did crabs. We did crawfish. We did uh, shrimp. We did some other stuff. Corn and potatoes. And all the stuff that you would have a, a, a seafood boil for. And then we had this big ass uh, cake that we got made for, for him. That was a temple cake. And it was a big ass cake. And he had all his friends from high school. He was so popular. I wonder where he gets that from. But it was everyone was there. It was a big old feast. And um, those, listen, we had chicken wings. We had seafood pasta. Them kids, it was a scene from The Lion King, the stampede scene. Them kids ate up everything. Now, mind you, he fried fish too. It was also fish fry. We, we did a lot. We did the most. But it was like, I mean, listen, I tell people, you got to celebrate black excellence like you 
you know, go up for black, you know, impeachments, indictments. So I want to be very clear. I am a firm condemner, but I'm a firm celebrator. If you do wonderful, I go up and I'm up and I'm stuck, right? But if you do bad, I'm going up there too with you, okay? But I feel like we have to, you know, as a community, as a people, we have to really go ham for the good things like we go ham for the bad things. And and what I do, the line of labor I do, when scandal happens, listen, we got to unpack it, right? But when good things happen, we have to unpack that and celebrate that and embrace that and go up for it. And I just think in a time like this, during we're still in a pandemic, right? We we have all these things. We have to really celebrate the good things that are happening out here. And we also have to hold the, the bad things accountable too, right? But sometimes I think people are stuck on the latter and not enough on the former. And to all these kids, especially these, these kids in public schools, um, like my brother and others who are in these public schools who are, 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 that are, that are black and brown kids and kids that are just going through all this, celebrate the fuck out of these kids. Seriously, celebrate the fuck out of them. Do what you want with them. Have all the stuff. If you want to have three back-to-back parties like my mother did and my parents did, do what you got to do because it's important. Let me tell you something. Sidebar, because I'm digressing. My mother, well, my mother surprised me with a Versace I Love Bork, Baroque um, robe. That, you know, the one that everybody's been wearing with the Versace all over with the nice little um, emblem with the crest and the uh, the, the um, Medusa uh, head on. That robe, she bought me that. She surprised me. For graduating my master's, she surprised me with this lovely gift. And um, I do a lot of Facebook lives and people know I've been known for wearing robes. And so this is the nicest, like, thoughtful gift I've had in a long time. Like, I mean, this is just so thoughtful. Because it's so, it's just, it's, it's just me. It, it's, it's me to a T. You know, only certain people can buy you gifts that just know you. And there's nothing like a gift from a parent. Because, like, she totally knew. Like, just, I was shocked. Um, and I took that beautiful baby home in this beautiful Versace box. Because I like nice things. And we'll talk about nice things in a minute. But yeah, celebrate Black Joy. Celebrate the, the good things. You know, it was such a touching time. So I did the most. Um, the Seafood Boy was awesome. He had a game trailer, which I've never seen these things. But let me tell y'all something. Those might be the new wave. Maybe I was late, but he got a game trailer. So what this thing is, like a trailer truck or whatever, but like a little trailer party bus type vibe. Basically, there's video game screens on the outside and the inside. There's also video game seats and, and people can play video games and inside and outside. And for a pandemic where you don't want to take up the entire playground, how do you maintain the fun in the neighborhood without like taking it over with fun parks and stuff like that? So this like literally was a central part place for everybody. Everybody played games. We had traditional games outside. I mean, it was just, it was lovely. It was just so much fun. And then Saturday, we had a dinner party because y'all know I love a dinner party. We went to Perry Steakhouse, which is not in Philly. Listen, I need a Perry's chain. Y'all done brought Steak 48 over to Philly. And we're going to talk about Steak 48, but let me get into this. But I need a Perry Steakhouse in Philly because Perry's is fabulous. And those cocktails were great. So we had a big, huge dinner party. Like 30 people came. Um, Family, friends, everyone came. It was such a lovely time. And um, he enjoyed everything. He was so spoiled. 
He enjoyed everything. He had a good time. I brought him a lot of temple gear that I will not personally wear, but I brought him some things. I got him, I, I was able to get it mailed to him because I was like not sure if he was going to get it in time, but he did. Sweatshirts, t-shirts, the water bottle, the, the, of course, the leather wallet with the emblem on it. Like he is templed out. That's the last time I'm going to buy some temple gear. I guess can't, I, listen, I'll wear a red t-shirt because you know, red and blue is the, are, are the pin colors. But they got that, uh, was it cherry and white is the, is the, or is the, uh, temple color. So we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. But, you know, he's super excited. He'll be coming at the end of the summer to get, you know, fully acclimated. But right now we're just doing all the little trinket, little stuff, the little buying stuff, the meal plans and all that stuff. Oh, oh, he's so excited. I'm so excited to bring him with me. Graduation was fabulous. Fabulous. Can't complain about it. Was the best thing of the vacation. All of the, the stuff we did for him. I mean, that was the fun. That was the joy. Oh, we also went to a winery. Shout out to my friend Ryan. So I have a friend named Ryan who owns a winery. It's called Nice Winery. And I was able to sneak a bottle from I bought to the airport, put it in the Versace box and brought it. No one took it out. So yes, I did some things like that. But I got me some wine from Nice Winery. We did a wine tasting. It was my mom and her boyfriend and Barry and I. And we both went to this winery and did the tastings. And it was so good. It was the, it was, it was, all the wine was organic and he had the winery with the, with the concords, the, the grapes and all that stuff. He had it outside. It was like on a, it's like near the high, it was on a highway, but he has his own little farm, organic farm. He's got chickens out there eating the worms. So, you know, it's real, but he was killing it. So shout out to my friend Ryan and his husband and, and their business. It, it was fabulous. We, we was just doing all these pairings with like, uh, bacon jam and, and all these cheeses and sausage. It was so great. So I enjoyed my vacation thoroughly. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed being around family members and cousins and little ones, children and playing Uno and all of the silly things that happens. And let's, let me just say this. They worked my boo to the bone. They found out that Mr. Johnson also does bartending on the side. Bartender Barry was out in full flesh. They worked Bartender Berry from the beginning. Once they found out, because see, my, that's what my mom does. My mom likes to brag heavy, so she likes to like let everybody, like tell everybody what everybody do. And then you you get you know you're like yay thanks, but then you realize oh family really gonna work you. So moment she she was showing off, she's like you know he's a bartender too. You know he does his his communications, but he's a he works in the day and bartends at night. He's Bartender Berry, and she just hypes him and listen. They was like oh you make a drink, well I want to see you make, and he was just wilding him out. Putting them to sleep each night, just making drinks for us. He made this really good lavender lemonade. Oh my God, it was so good. But he, you know, I get to drink him every day. Pause. <laughs> but um, he makes great drinks and he made some great drinks for them. And it was fabulous. It was just a good time. I really enjoyed my time with, with family. I, uh, I do plan to come back for the holidays when it's not all that. Those trees and pollen and all that stuff outside. I I do plan to come back. Um, but yes. So that was Texas in a nutshell. Of course, there was family drama. You know, there's always some family drama when you go down south or whenever you were family, you know. So it was interesting. Um, but but all but all things, you know, uh not when not with my parents, me and my parents and like that, but like, you know, it's it's the stepdad and the mom's boyfriend. Um, my stepdad, you know, was in my life for like 
is is I my stepfather is my father. Let me just say that. I should say that. My my biological father, um, he's passed away years ago, but my stepfather um raised me most of my life. So he's really much is very much show my father. But it's just interesting seeing the dynamics between family and everything like that. It's just always a um one of my friends called me, Farrah called me that day. She was like an uh, anthropologist, like studying like human behavior. But it was just, you know, it's a master class in case study, especially when parents get remarried or get in relationships and stuff. It's always interesting to see like family settings like that. Black people know what I'm talking about. Everybody, listen, we're a modern family. Let's just say that. All right. So, Stake 48. Because let's just, let's just, let's just talk about Stake 48. Because there are situations where... I couldn't give my full thoughts and I wasn't going to type it out because sometimes you know how it is when you type something out. You know, people read it certain way. But one of the things about the State 48 situation, so let me back this up because some people, I got folks that are not just from Philadelphia listening to my show. You people in the UK, shout out to London, shout out to Canada. Can I just give a shout out to Pakistan too? Because let me just shout y'all out to let y'all know that I know you're listening to this show. Last week, I didn't do a new episode, but you all got it to the charts in the top 150 of Apple Podcasts in this section. I just want to give y'all a high note of applause. All of y'all who been listening to this show, all of you all, thank you for that. That was just so touching. Like, I woke up last week and the numbers just went boom. Um, thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for getting it out there internationally to my people in the UK. I'm so grateful for you all. And I just want to say to my UK listeners in general that I have been consistently on, you all like put me on your shows and I'm talking the, the black Brits, the white Brits, all of you all have keep putting me on your shows, your, your podcasts, your programs, and just that crossover love as, as an American who is really not crazy about America in certain cases what we do in this country and how we've done other people around the war, around the world and abroad. I just want to say thank you um, for having me on your shows, promoting my content, really giving uh, so much uh, support to this podcast and understanding the cultural differences and not letting my accent and things get in the way. And we love Kate Winslet too. We we love her over here in Pennsylvania. She's a hit right now in Delco. Okay, so I just love this international cross exchange. Okay, Mayor Easttown and Ernest, which is cross cultural exchanges. But thank you all for listening to the show and sharing it because I do see when I get the analytics, I, I I have high listenership in Denmark. Denmark, okay. <coughs> Shout out to Denmark. Shout out to people in Denmark listening. <coughs> you all listen too heavily. Um, Shout out to Canada. Shout out to Kakaskan. You all definitely listen to apparently. Sweden and all everybody, just everybody. Thank you. Mm. So let me explain this stake for you situation. To my international listeners, to everyone listening. Stake 48 is a chain, is an upscale chain restaurant. Let me say this about upscale. Upscale is not a conversation about what people think about their taste buds, if they think the food is good or not good, okay? I have to lecture people on upscale. Upscale is, is, is a matter of what they're trying to make their restaurant appear to be, right? So upscale can be in the, in the fact of the location it's at. It's about the architecture. Upscale isn't just about the food itself. Upscale is about everything that surrounds the ambiance of that place. Steak 48 is an upscale restaurant. 
It is. It is upscale. The traditional restaurant has wooden tables, has, you know, a smaller space. They don't use fine sterling silver forks and chairs. This is a high-end restaurant, okay? They have an entire wine list and section. They have wine all over the damn place that's closed up. They have bottles of wine that cost more than the average meal. This is an upscale restaurant. So for people that was saying this smart-ass shit, I don't understand how upscale is a chain. There are upscale chain restaurants. It's so funny how people who act like they're not into like, you know, highbrow, whatever, you want to talk about what a chain it was. A chain, listen, there are upscale chain restaurants. There is a place called Vic and Anthony's. I dare you all to say that place is not upscale because it's a chain. Fuck out of here. There are upscale chain restaurants. Upscale has nothing to do with whether you like the food or not, whether you think the food tastes good or not. It's all about the, the pricing, the scale of pricing, and the ambiance that it's trying to exude. Okay? Okay. Because there's places that have way better food than Steak 48, but it's not upscale. Okay? Let's just, let's just, you know, I just want to, I'm just, you know, I love to have my, 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 my podcast because then I get to be on my soapbox and I get to make sense of things that people just say out in the world. And you're just like, okay, I can't explain this to every person I encounter. So let me just explain this to a group of people. Upscale has never been about whether something was fundamentally good or not. It's all about what the attempt was and the investment it was. So Sake 48 invests way more money in its restaurant and its time ambiance than most restaurants do, which makes it upscale because of the fact that it does, right? So JG Sky Lounge, which is Jean, uh, John George's, John George's, um, that's upscale, right? R2L was upscale before it, you know, shuttered, Um there are upscale restaurants, right? Del Frisco's, not Del Frisco's Grill, but Del Frisco's when it first opened was upscale. Um, Ocean Prime, semi. Butcher and Singer, definitely upscale. You just know, right? Cheesecake Factory, not upscale. The price, the prices are too, too, too low to be upscale, right? So that's upscale, right? Things that are expensive. But also things that people spend a lot of money on for different reasons. We'll get to that. So let's back this. Let's 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 continue. Steak Forty Eight is an upscale restaurant. It's a chain restaurant, but it's still upscale. It is a restaurant that opened up during the pandemic. It came around late summer, fall of two thousand and twenty during the pandemic, right? Uh, it was a soft opening, but it, it, it amassed a lot of popularity quickly in the pandemic. Um, they're a part of what I call Steakhouse Row. That's a, that's something that I say a lot. Steakhouse Row is in Center City, where there's a concentration of steakhouses next to each other. So when you go through and loop through Broad Street all the way through Walnut and Chestnut, there's tons of steakhouses. Capital, McCormick and Schmitz, Del Fresco's, Ocean Prime, Butcher and Singer, Morden's, um, Steak 48, Del Fresco's Grill, uh, fuck with a child's over there. A lot of stuff is over there. Steakhouses, right? So you have that steakhouse row, which is what I call a steakhouse row. That's all in that area. Steak 48 is one of the higher end um, tiers of that area as far as prices for steaks, right? And one of the newest places. So last week there was some controversy because they there's there's locations in Charlotte, Houston, Chicago, in Philly. But Chicago and Philadelphia 
got hit with a $100 per minimum per person um, regulation. So if you go to Stake 48, they want you per person to spend at least $100. If you look at the menu, it should not be hard to do that. If you're going to sit down at that table, not that the ten. If you're going to do, if you're going to stake forty eight, oh my goodness, let me let me get myself together because this is going to be some things. It's going to be said. If you're going to stake forty eight for dinner, the likelihood of you spending a hundred dollars is not hard. Now there's been conversation about well, what about the elderly people who go there who don't drink or whatever the case might be. I don't think I don't think that ocean. I don't think that stake forty eight is going to kick granny out or give grandma a hard time if she doesn't eat the $100 minimum. Because nine times out of 10, the other folks that are there that is eating at that dinner is probably going to make up for what granny did not spend in her $100. Nine times out of 10, they're not thinking of the most rare occasions, right? And and I, th- I think that every... Bodies worked in the service industry. You know, when I was younger, I worked for Olive Garden. I worked for uh, fast food and things like that when I was little. So I will say, and I'm not talking about minimum, but I'll just say that anytime there was rules or regulations and policies, no one's no one's coming after senior citizens most of the time. They're not thinking of them. They wasn't thinking, oh, Granny can't, Grandpa can't afford it, so we're kicking Grandpa out. Or my 84, they're not thinking of that. I think people like to go to extremes and outliers so they can try to justify the fuck shit that does happen by the core uh, base of customers that do go to restaurants like that. So let's 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 just put that out there, because I just think so many people like to hyper rationalize or hyper overthink shit that just isn't what is happening here. So in addition to that, they've had their dress code. Their dress code is. Basically pushing for a more semi-formal energy. So they don't want t-shirts with logos. They don't want baggy clothes. They don't want people to wear baseball caps or fitted caps or whatever like that up in the restaurant. They really want people to smell like they, you know, smell normal. Don't come in smelling like a bag of cigarettes, whatever, you know, all of that. Um, They don't want sneakers. I'm not sure. I don't think they want sneakers if they can avoid it. They were not against jeans, um, which was a plus because I'm a dark blue jean person with a button up shirt. But they were just they said T-shirts, but that doesn't have a lot of logos and just over top. So I think what they're going for is a semi formal look or formal look. They don't really want the the they, they don't want the place to look like a sports bar. Um, because when you walk into Steak 48, it, it looks at you like, who the fuck are you doing in here with looking like a looking like a football player, basketball player? Uh, or you're going to Kavanaugh's, right? So this dress code, like if you came in there talking about some Go Eagles, they're like, uh-uh, don't come up in with all that. Because they really want to look. They want to look that looks like what they interpret sophistication to be, grown and sexy. And we know what that looks like. Some people act like they know what that looks like. But we're going to talk about what it looked like, all right? So they put this policy out and social media lost its mind. Everybody started saying, you know... They felt like the the price minimum was classist, elitist, and all of these things. Okay. 
They thought that the dress code policy was racist. They thought that it was it was a way to racially profile uh, specifically black and brown people. They felt like the for them to put that price minimum in Philadelphia, being a predominantly black and brown city, that this was pricing out black and brown folks and people said it was racist, that they were trying to push out black people. My big motherfucking question is why? Why the fuck did y'all be so quick to assume that it was black people? So I'm going to I'm going to just go through what the things were said and some of the things that people try to tell me. And you know why this is a little bit hilarious, because people know who the hell I am in Google. Some people did not know who I was. So these are things that people told me. I had one person sending me a list of the black wealth gap. Yes, me. They sent me the black wealth income gap and was trying to explain to me the disproportions of black people getting access to wealth, uh, systemic institutional racism. They tried to explain to me the history of black and brown people being discriminated in public accommodations and places. Um, they tried to talk to me about what racial profiling is. They tried to tell me that I was disconnected and out of tune because of my lack of understanding of this is what they tried to accuse me of. This is why Google needs to happen. This is why I keep telling y'all to use Google. This would be almost as if I told Stacey Abrams, okay, let's just say I didn't know who Stacey Abrams was. I didn't Google her. And Stacey Abrams took a position or said something and I didn't agree with it. And I tried to tell Stacey Abrams about voter suppression and segregation. And I tried to tell Stacey Abrams about the difficulties that black voters have compared to white voters. And I tried to talk to Stacey Abrams about how Georgia is trying to suppress votes. And, and Stacey Abrams was probably looking at that person like, motherfucker, what? Th that's how I felt. Because I did not, because I was pushing back on some of the over connotations that was coming from how people was reading this. So let me just set the record straight for people who may have not understood or chose not to understand what my position was. Here's the thing, okay? There's so many levels, but let's talk about on the surface level. There are so many restaurants in Philadelphia and across this country that have dress code policies. It's not a new concept, y'all. It, it, it was not born overnight. As someone who has written about dress code policies that are discriminatory and racial profiling of dress code policies, as someone who's done this type of work consistently. I mean, I wrote a whole piece called Dining While Black and talked about Philadelphia's racist dining history. I've written this already. One national awards for it, by the way, three years ago. Read it. Google it. Dining While Black in Philly. Ernest Owens. Put it in there. Read that article. It was a long form. I talked about this so in depth. But <clears throat> on the internet, people don't have context. People don't believe in reading. People like to do fast, hot takes and talk to people they don't know who the fuck they're talking to about stuff that these people have laid the groundwork about. It's nothing like someone... Here, here's one of the things that one of these people did. It's nothing like somebody sharing an article that you wrote about a topic and not realizing that you're the one who wrote the topic they were talking about. I had somebody send me a, an article about how 2.5% of black-owned business, black business in Philadelphia talked about, you need to understand this concept. Have you thought about this? And I'm like, sir... Look at that byline. I fucking wrote that article. I wrote it two years ago. They were like, oh, damn. Dag. What they say in Philly. Dag. I didn't know that. Oh, 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 my bad. Right. You snapping at me using my work, the research that I was doing, the information I provided against me and not realize I'm the same person. But I feel like what happened was that people were so hell-bent 
There were so many things being said and so much projection being said. And so let me just start off with, let, let me just start off with this on a surface level. There are restaurants across Philadelphia that have dress code policies. Sometimes they're explicit. Sometimes they're just a, use your fucking brain. But there are dress codes at most of these restaurants. There are restaurants that say you must wear dinner coats. There are restaurants that say that they don't want you coming in there, you know, with, 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 with fitted caps. There are restaurants that have these policies and there are restaurants that don't. Steak 48 did not invent the dress code. Don't know why everyone's, you know, acting like that's not a thing. Upscale restaurants have dress codes. I'm telling you, go look up some of your favorite restaurants. Capital Grill definitely have them, right? Steak 48 had them. Everyone has them. There's a lot of places that have them, Okay. Go on restaurants and you do y'all book do anyone book reservations anymore? But when you go on certain websites and you book reservations or you do your thing, there's information about all those things. People have dress codes. I got a dress code for my wedding. Okay? If you don't like dress codes, then just do what you do at home. Or go somewhere that that is that is a little bit, you know, less formal. But if you want to go to formal dining experiences, that means in creating the formality. The formalness of it all means that there's going to be certain customs that is a part of that experience. Proms have dress codes. High schools have dress codes. Why are we acting like dress codes are so, like, new? Or why do we conflate dress codes with race? What are you saying? So so you think every black woman or man that go out wears fitted fucking caps. I don't know the last time I fucking wore a fitted cap, to be honest. I don't know. Baggy, are only black people wearing baggy clothes? Because there's a lot of white people out here trying to be Eminem and Macklemore out here that's trying to do their own little thing and be their own little thug and ain't got nothing to do with us. But when did we, when did we start conflating this idea around dressing and culture with race. I mean, that's something that's been going on for, for decades, okay? So it's not like I have the answers, right? But just the, the presumption that we go from zero to 100, that we look at a dress code policy and we automatically just say black, 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 black. Okay. But like I said, I'm not tripping on the dress code policy. I can see how people can interpret the dress code policy as being discriminatory. Dress code policies by default, do discriminate because the policy is telling people what they can and cannot do. Any policy or regulation is discriminating in some kind of way. Racial discrimination, I mean, that becomes like a what the fuck moment. Like, you know, you really got it. You really got to gotta figure that out. You really got to. I mean, there's, there's just so many lines. And listen, I have covered stuff like this. So I remember with eye candy, I covered the No Timberlands when they did the No Timberland boots. But I want to be very clear that that was a different situation because there was already racial profiling that was happening in the neighborhood. So when they made that no Timberlands policy, the fact that they specifically said no Timberlands, that was why I felt like it was racially, uh, it was racially coddled, right? Because we know that specifically Timberland boots are worn in Philadelphia by a lot of black men. The, 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 the State 48 thing isn't specifying you specific items, right? So if they said no, oh my God, what's that? Milano de Rouge shirts. Then you got a case because we know that the sisters out here wear the Milano de Rouge. The brothers do too with the shirts, but we know that that's a black designer, that this is a popular piece of material. So if they said no Milano de Rouge shirts, okay, you got a case here. But 
by saying or, or, or no Timberland boots and you're specifying it with men, right? So you didn't say no boots. You say no Timberland. So you can wear Doc Martens. You can wear any. You can wear Aldo. You can wear Chelsea boots, but you can't wear Timberlands. Interesting. See, that's the shit. That's the difference. When I was covering racial discrimination in the neighborhood, we were looking at specific things that were said that could be could be considered racial profile on that level. But when you start saying stuff like no label T-shirts, white people wear label T-shirts too. Everybody do. So you can't. You just, you know, it's a, it's when you're accusing people of these types of things and you're going public about them, you got to make sure your shit makes sense. Because I'm the type of person that takes shit seriously. And I'm the type of person that if you come to me with some stuff, like, I want to fight with a cause and a real purpose in mind that's going to really address the issue. Not just making some, accusing people of things, but really not really hiring down what it is. And I'm not, by saying this, I'm not going out for capitalism with anybody. There's a lot of fucking people out here accusing people of shit and saying shit. And if you, some of the people coming at me, boo boo. If you would know as a journalist, all of the stuff that come on my desk about everybody's business, black owned businesses too, okay? You will find out that a lot of this stuff that people say, you can't just run off of that. You cannot just run off of just hearsay. And I think that that's the problem is that people interpret things and they run with it, but I, they don't they don't they don't come with the concretes. But yet you're you're going to do some damage to people that work there. At State Forty Eight, that executive chef is a black man. Just putting that there, not to say that that automatically you know exempts them from everything. But when there was allegations that there was not black leadership or place in those spaces, that's not true. It's not true. The executive chef there, many of whom y'all was clowning his food and steak, you was trashing a black man. And if you didn't like the food because you didn't like the institution, you could have trashed the institution while trashing him or his food. But see, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, again, this is what happens when you get a population that's misinformed or chooses to be woefully ignorant so they can support their own biases and beliefs. Because once a person run on stupid, it's hard to stop them. Ask Donald Trump, ask other people that run on stupid, like Dr. Umar Johnson, Charlamagne the God. I mean, there's plenty of people that run on stupid in this country. Okay? Look, look what's happened over there with that Matt Gates guy over there in Congress. You the people when they when people run on stupid, it's hard to stop them. Because they are so, at that point, they don't want to admit they were wrong. They don't want to admit that there's something they did not think about in the perspective. But once they're running on stupid, it's hard to stop them. And that's what happened here. So, to my larger point, the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations found that there has been no complaints of racial discrimination at Stake 48. No one has filed a formal complaint. No one has alleged anything. When I covered neighborhood racism, because many people like to make these comparisons, we there were people that filed formal complaints to PCHR about incidents that happened there at that at those bars. There was hearings. There were people that moved. There were people that went out physically and protested that place for that racial discrimination. There were city council members that then created policies to put in place tougher sanctions on commercial properties across the city that engage in this type of behavior. This was work, okay? And to compare it to this petty shit that's going on with this, I just feel like y'all don't do y'all history. Don't talk on my work. Don't talk on the work of black queer activists and trans people who did that work to fight that fight. Don't conflate 
Because a lot of people stayed silent when that was happening. It's so funny how everybody got all this mouth for State 48, but I didn't see none of y'all saying nothing about the discrimination that was happening to Gabriel Hill, a lot of these people. I didn't see y'all in solidarity. I didn't see y'all out there confronting those things. So I just want to just remind people where they fall, where they stand on these situations and the selective outrage that people choose to have based on what they want to be mad about, what they choose not to. Some people just want to be mad at shit. I get it. But but let's but let's be mad and, and factual. Let's be mad and correct. So the dress code policy for me is subjective, right? Dress code policy by default is always going to have interpretation going left to right. So I'm not crazy about, like, I'm not defending the dress code policy. I just feel like, at the end of the day, every restaurant is going to have to explain their dress code policy to their customers, to the public. Everybody has them. A lot of these restaurants have them. Y'all just never gave a fuck about them. <laughs> I Just because someone put it on front street on social media, then that made people then criticize it. But I could take a picture of a McCormick Schmidt's dress code or Del Frisco's, and I will promise you that a lot of that language and a lot of that stuff is similar to what State 48 did. They, they didn't make it nothing new. Dress code policy, okay. So this $100 minimum, because I'm going to defend that. I feel like personally, as somebody who is a foodie, who has lost restaurants in this town, there are some restaurants, y'all, my damn wedding recital dinner, I have to change the restaurant now. I was super excited about having my restaurant party, okay? I'm so, so sad. I wanted to have it at Bococini. My recital dinner was supposed to be at Bococini. And, um... The chef there, her name is Crystal Fox. She's a talented cook. She's a talented culinary local genius. She made an incredible BYOB with incredible Italian food. Soul. Okay, soul. Heartwarming food. Food that came from the soul. Um, just great food. Great sauces. Great pieces. Great bread. It was so, it was so divine. And it was a BYOB. And it was good. It was just a good time. I have had birthday parties there. I've had everything there. Um, it, it, it closed its doors a couple of weeks ago. And it was because, you know, that overhead, that money, you know, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't survive. And we was just getting so close out the pandemic and then they, they left. And it happened to rest Ipsa, another one of my favorite restaurants. <sighs> We've lost a lot of great restaurants during this pandemic. And when people... When June 11th hit and you all start making reservations and you start walking through this town and you start seeing places that used to pop no longer in existence, you will understand why Steak 48 has to have a $100 minimum. The dining scene is what has kept Philadelphia's vibrance. What makes Philadelphia a new unique place on the East Coast is that you all have a great restaurant scene. You all have some of the most incredible visionaries of food in our modern era. I mean, you got Michael Solomon. You have Chad Williams, who owns the fabulous Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I got to use that gift card, by the way. You all have Sanat. You all have Garzas. You all have Star, who you have to share with the New York. You all have Cook. You all have Elmi and, and, and Yen. And if you don't know these names, <laughs> please, please look them up. You, you have incredible thinkers and, and people who have put thought into the food, right? People who've, who've created 
destinations and, and, and things of this experience. And to see these places that were once filled with, with, with customers who ate and drank and tipped well to be on their deathbeds, some of them, is sad. So I, I wonder, you know, there's a lot of conversations about why would a place like Stay for a Day 8 do a $100 minimum? We can all agree that them putting the sign up at the restaurant, like that sign, is tacky, right? It's tacky. Um, one could argue that like valet parking, they put like a valet sign. One could argue that it could be said on the menu or it could be told to the customers up front. Um, presentation rollout may have not been the best, but the concept behind why they did it makes sense. And you have to ask yourself, why would a restaurant, an upscale restaurant like Steak 48, have to even have a $100 minimum? Short answer, because people was not spending $100 or more. And as a result, their waiters and cooks and people were not being tipped. And and I'm gonna get to some of the other you know stuff that was said by folks about labor and wage because we're gonna we gonna we gonna we gonna unpack all of this. So everybody want to message me what my thoughts were all fucking week. Let's talk about let's talk about some of that. So I don't know if you all know this, but a lot of restaurants right now are doing prefix menus. Now some restaurants like Zahav is doing like a sixty five per person with a twenty percent gratuity which is standard. Um, like many, I'm tipping 30%. That's like the foodie code. Foodies know that people are tipping 30% um, for, 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 for food. They're tipping 30%. Um, that's what the, the, the foodies are doing right now. But at least at the bare minimum, 20%. If you are under 20%, that ain't no tip. That's, a, that's some throwaway. That's some, 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 some shit, shit change. Okay, twenty percent is the least, and then thirty percent is is if you really if you you know if if, if you really trying to trying to make an impact for those folks. But twenty percent at least. So um, Zahav is doing this. Um, Zahav does that at their restaurant, and Zahav is a upscale Israeli um, cuisine, right? A lot of restaurants are doing this across the board. They're they're creating prefix menus that are mandatory for everyone to get. If you can't get entrees, you have to get the mandatory. Now, drinks, that's all on you, but at least $65 uh, someplace. So Zahav is doing that, right? There are restaurants that you go to, they only have that prefix menu at that at the cost they have, which are pretty pricey. Ain't nobody complaining about that. Nobody's complaining about that, that there's a mandatory prefix menu at most of these restaurants, that... They're making sure that every ass at that seat. And then on top of that, they're throwing in a $20 gratuity to make sure that their servers are getting a, a average, a, 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 ma a maximum, what well, I mess a minimum of, of, of value at a table. I think it's genius. I think that it's a pandemic proof model that maybe should be happening at other restaurants moving forward. Now, I don't necessarily, let me say this though. Not everybody could do a prefix menu because some people have so many items on their menu that they want to give people the option of variety. So that's what Steak 48 did with the option of variety. But I think some restaurants like Zahav, where they have a variety of different dishes, 
it's easy for them to remix a prefix menu and you kind of don't really go in there obsessed over one thing because it's an experience, right? But if you're going to some traditional restaurants like Booker's, which is a black owned restaurant, it's a, you know, a fairly middle of the road type of restaurant as far as pricing and stuff goes. Pretty, pretty chill, pretty affordable. Um, they are mandating a 20% gratuity, but they're not mandating a minimum on food. But most people that go there are are eating, you know, and I think they can't put a minimum because their food is so like super cheap as far as like the, the price of the foods, the items that it'll be really hard for them to like try to impose something of that nature. But they do specials where they do mandate um, prefix menus and things, but they're so affordable that the gratuity is a set charge. But that being said, when you're at an upscale restaurant like Steak 48, when you start factoring the cost of rent, that's a different type of money situation that's different from some of these other places, right? So if you're on Steak 48, you got a property on Broad Street, okay? The rent and the cost there, you can't go in there and just eat what you want and pay a $20 gratuity, a 3% gratuity, because that still won't make, their, make any money. It, it definitely does not help those servers who do more work and more labor in the in the experience itself. Like there are like let me say something. When you get service at at a place like Booker's, right? The servers are like pretty much hi, how you doing? Give you water, whatever. But when you go to a place like Steak Forty Eight, they want you to cut that steak. If that steak doesn't taste right, they go and send it back. They ask you what the temperature is. They change out your forks every five seconds. Those servers are busting their ass in a different type of way. Facts. Facts. I mean, they're pouring wine. They're asking you what type of wines. They're telling you what the wines are. I mean, they are coming in there like sommeliers, sommeliers and, and, and connoisseurs of, of, of cocktails. There's a different energy. They're trained differently. They're expected to do more. And they should be fucking paid more. So when I heard people complaining about the Steak 48 minimum, I'm like, what in the fuck are you doing in there? And I want to be clear that there is a culture. And let me just say this, because this is the part that I think people just don't understand. I don't think this Steak 48 situation would have been a catastrophe had it not been for the pandemic. I think the pandemic is making everything seem more bizarre than what it is. Back in the day, right, when we had the bars opening and the bars were popping and they were the thing, right? There were people that would just go to the bar and eat appetizing drinks. There was no minimum. There wasn't none of that because the folks that ate appetizers ate the appetizers at the bar. They knew that that was bar food. There was a bar menu. You didn't get that at the table if you was dining. If you was dining, you knew you was there to sit down and eat dinner. That always has been the case, right? Chima has a huge bar scene, like a happy hour scene. Everybody wants the little light bites and the drinks. You go over there, that's what's serving you. Those waiters, those servers knew what that energy was. It was fast money, quick money. Everybody was tipping. You know, you, you, you was able to get some quick dollars. You was, you was putting out some little bites. It was, it was simple, okay? When the pandemic happened, bars, as you all know, has been kind of shuttered. Bars are not like happening the same way. You know, Philadelphia has not allowed bars to open in the way they did before the pandemic. So what that mean was is that there were a lot of people who were like, I still want to eat at this place, but I want to eat what I ate at the bar. And that fucked up the entire money flow and culture of a lot of those upscale restaurants. 
Because when you sat your ass down at a restaurant like Steak 48, Del Frisco's, Capital, whomever, you knew you were there to spend some money. And if you wasn't going to spend no money, you didn't go. Okay? Let me tell you something. There are times when Mr. Johnson and I want to go out and we want to we ball out. And there are times we're like, you know what? This wedding coming up. Listen, listen, this is, listen, let's, let's, let's be cute tonight. So we the type of couple that will go to Magiana's. We the type of couple that will go to Steak 48. We the type of couple that go to, to, to Al- Alpen Rose, which is a great steakhouse. We the type of couple that go to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Or we would just go to Pattaya and eat some really good Thai food. Or go to an Indian buffet like New Delhi and drop $30 and be cute and full. Like, as a foodie, it's never really been about whether something was good or bad or pricing. It's all about experience. So there were times where we wanted to be more laid back. We go to Little Nona's or we go to Butter Maryland's or, or we'll go to, you know, sometimes South when South was acting right. Go to Booker's for brunch. It, I'm a across the board foodie and people that follow me on Instagram, you all, I mean, anybody follow me on social, I'm, I'm really post all my food pictures. I go to the high of heights and I go to the low of lows. I'm all in between. If it's good, I'm in there. Okay. But it's all about vibe. It's all about mood. And so if I'm feeling like I really want to dress to impress, if I want to put on some red bottoms and I want to take my ass out, I'm not going to wear my red bottoms to, to, to ax them. I'm not going to wear my red bottoms to warm daddies. I'm going to wear my warm, my, my red bottoms to, to, to R2L, RIP R2L, right? I'm going to wear what I would wear at places that would call for it. Because you don't want to look like a dead dickhead in a full body suit at a place like, hmm, hmm, what's a place that, that if you wore a, a suit, people would look at you like you had a problem? Y'all know some restaurants, Relish, unless I was a politician today. But if I went up to Relish, well, Relish is, if I didn't go to Relish on, on Super Soul Sunday or I did not go to Relish on Political Night. If I came up there in a full body suit at Relish in Northwest, folks would be like, why he all dressed up like that over here? This is, boy, come over here with a button up on a polo, right? They don't want you doing all that at Relish. Not that you can't, it's just that it's a different vibe, you know? Or, or Green Eggs Cafe. What if I came to Green Eggs Cafe with a three piece on? Like, that's just not, that's not the vibe. That's just not the vibe. And that's okay. It's okay for there not to be. It's okay. That's culture. Because when you make a restaurant, right, it's a culinary artistry. It's an art to it. People know what kind of vibe they want to have. When I go out to events with my friends, my friends are like, what we wearing? Right? Like, what is the, what happened to people? What's going on with people? Right? Do we, have we like lost any context of like social norms and things that we created? Vibes, energies? I don't know. I just think some people just are just. Once they don't like something, everything's got to change. I just remember, like, people would ask, right? My friends say, okay, what are we going out? What are we, what are we, what are we dressing up for tonight? What are we doing? What's the energy? I'm like, y'all, it's a button-up jeans situation. It's a, it's a cocktail dress situation. One of my best friends, Sharon, she's glamorous. She can wear, she can wear, whatever, she, <coughs> she can wear whatever she wants, no matter where she goes. <coughs> and she will kill it. <laughs> Bless me again. And she will kill it. She will wear whatever she could wear whatever she wanna wear. Whether she is going out to a major gala or she's going out to just a nice night with the boys, getting some drinks with us. 
Sharon is gonna Sharon is gonna slay regardless of what she wears. But the good thing about our friendship and on all of my friends, it's like we all check in on each other what the energy is before we go out because none of us want to look like out of the loop. And that's fair. That's this knife. That's just always the energy. Like you just want to know what you you don't want to look, you don't want to look off if, if the place is giving something else. And is that elitism? Is that classism? Shit, I don't know. I don't I don't think it necessarily is. I mean, when black people have all white parties, you know, you know, you know some people that love an all white party, right? Everybody love an all white party, you know, when there's a cookout or a family gathering. That's the vibe that people want to give. You can't penalize people for wanting to, you know, create those fun times or those experiences. I mean, listen, everybody's all, what if you don't get white? Does that mean you're excluded? I mean, listen, most of the times it's never that deep, right? It's never that deep. Most of the times these are things that people ideally have in mind. Why can't people have those unique experiences? Why can't people create those experiences for their friends? Why can't restaurant owners who create restaurants cannot create these types of, you know, trends for themselves with you know, that that is not necessarily, that's universal, right? That's not trying to be intentionally fucked over, right? There's some things that I do agree with that can be discriminatory. But I sometimes think sometimes people read read themselves or project themselves too much into something that becomes a larger indictment or criticism that doesn't necessarily exist in that situation. In that situation. Not all situations, but in those type of situations. So... With the $100 minimum, I'm for it because I do think that, like I said before, there are there has been a culture in a way, I'm telling you this as a journalist, that there has been a lot of restaurants that I have heard about from different servers of people saying, look, I'm at these, these high-end restaurants in Center City, I'm on Broad, and people out here are not spending money like they used to. Um, some people, right? They're like, look, there are people that's coming in during a happy hour. And, you know, not their happy hour, right? Because some of these restaurants are not even doing happy hour like they used to. But they're doing, you know, meal specials and stuff. And people are just coming in there and they're like, just buying appetizers and drinks. And they're doing a lot of lounging and hanging out. And they're not getting, these people are not getting tipped well. Because, again, if if, if we're saying the average cost, uh, the minimum tip desirably is 20%. Let's say you go somewhere, you get two appetizers a drink. That's about maybe $45, $40, depending on where you go. That tip is only $8. But let's say you didn't sat at that table for two hours with your friends talking. Or you go somewhere and you see a bunch of people just having drinks. Nobody's buying food. Or you see these these finger foods that people are just sharing. I've seen some of that out going out to these restaurants. I've seen restaurants where there's been a group of people. And I'm not just, listen, these are not black people, y'all. I mean, there are some black people that's doing this, but it's not just black and brown people. Let me clarify. I've seen a lot of yuppies, okay, friends, people, lawyers, folks out here, groups that are coming off of work and they just want to have a cute little cocktail and chat situation. And that's just happening across the world. I think, honestly, I think it's more of a generational thing. I'm seeing a lot of younger people do this. But they're going to these places. They're taking Instagram pictures. They're being quote unquote influencers. They're having these cute little light bites. They're taking Model S pictures by the window. And then they're dipping. And I remember one time I was at a restaurant and I saw one of these influencers doing this. And I was so upset because the server, when they left, told me how annoyed they was because they said this person made them have to pose, hold their camera and, and take pictures of them 
And they only gave him a $5 tip. So there's a lot of shady stuff happening to these restaurant owners. And I just want to say that I know some friends in the industry and I hear their stories and their frustrations. And it's just, it's just a tough time. But the problem is, is that, you know, um, and now I really want to say this and then get to another point because some stuff was also said. I think one of the biggest issues to me is that there was a lot of conversations around restaurants and people being upset. And, and, and there was a lot of stuff about how restaurants need to pay people fair wages and all this and a third. OK, I agree with you all. But let me tell you something about something. Okay, let me let me talk to you all about something about society and about com- the complexity of things and workers. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can know that there are things that currently exist without in- indefinitely hurting the very people that we claim to want to support. I agree that restaurant industry has always been fucked up. They've always been fucked up. The the whole tipping culture has always been problematic in the United States. Other countries don't even do that. But we've accepted this for, 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 for decades, centuries. And now we have to get to a point where we have to figure out Is there laws that need to be done, which I'm, I'm, I'm adamant about, that tell people that we are creating a minimum for every single worker and we need to not exclude restaurant workers. But I want everybody to think very carefully what that will look like. And I'm not disagreeing with it. I want to be clear what that would mean right now. If we were to impose that $15 minimum, of restaurants in Philadelphia will shut down immediately. They could not afford it. And that is because of the culture of restaurants, because this restaurant culture has been built on some level exploitative labor, but it's also been because we've tolerated this culture for so long. It's a habit. It's a culture. Cultures take time to reverse. Trust me. I know as a black gay man, I know. But if we were to say that we demand all these restaurants to give $15 an hour, whatever, a lot of these restaurants will not exist. They just won't. I'm telling you that. Want to know what the example was? V Street. V Street was this restaurant that opened in Redden House. A popular vegan restaurant. People loved them some V Street. It was a popular restaurant. The workers were voted. They wanted higher paid labor. They wanted which they deserve. They wanted benefits. They wanted all of these things. V Street couldn't afford to give them that and be able to maintain profits or anything. So V Street shut down. It just shut down. So those workers who was getting paid something but wanted more and they deserved more didn't end up getting anything in the process. Happened at West Philadelphia around Baltimore Avenue with that, uh, was it Honey and Milk? Milk and Honey? Uh, location. Those workers were voted. They boycotted. Said they wasn't going to work anymore. They wanted more wages and benefits and all those things, right? It shut down. And those workers didn't have a job. 
that's just what the reality will be if we said that. Will they be reborn again? No. Will restaurants moving forward have to? Yes. But in the process of rebuilding, you're going to have an entire class of people, working class people. And if you care about black and brown people, lots of them in that demographic, that would be without jobs and without work and will be in complete and utter poverty. All because people want to make rapid decisions and demands that aren't realistic to the environment. It's deep. It's deep. This restaurant stuff isn't just a give people more money now. Oh, I wish it was that easy. I wish that all of these restaurants had this invisible money that they're just fucking filthy rich with that they're not giving their workers. And there are some fast food chains. I'm all about coming at McDonald's. I'm all about coming at Popeye's and all these places. But the restaurants individually, it's not the same. The fight that we have in McDonald's should be the fight we have for these restaurants. However, we have to recognize the complicity, the, 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 the differences here, right? Between what we understand as restaurant goers. Because see, it's easy for the KFC argument, right? Because these are corporate, multi-billion dollar corporations. And the chain restaurants, the, the larger chain restaurants, let me be clear, larger chain restaurants. That makes sense. But when you start trying to get into these other restaurants that barely make profits, even with this model, they would not be able to survive with that, mo- that, that current model. And so in many ways, you would be calling for the overhaul of most of these restaurants in this country to die. And what are you going to give them, you Twitter activists, some of you? Some of you are real organizers, but a lot of you are Twitter activists. What do you propose for those people? Hmm? What do you give them next? Because those jobs are going to just be reinvented overnight. It's not like something's going to change today and then tomorrow will be something different. What will be the immediate response? Exactly. So I'm not saying this in the sense of pessimism. I'm saying that in reality, right now in this pandemic, it's up to us. Us, consumers, you and I, to make sure these workers are okay. And yes, their companies should step up more, but their companies clearly can only do what they can do. And so if that means in this situation, we have to step up and pay and tip these people well, God damn it, let's do it. And if you can't go to Stake 48 and spend $100 to tip these people well, then you don't have to go to Steak 48. You could go to TJF Fridays, a chain restaurant. You could go wherever else you want to go that doesn't have that regulation. And that's your prerogative. But you can't force or shame this restaurant, any of these restaurants that's trying to create a way to make money for their servers while keeping their doors up. Because quite frankly, the model to which they were served to open these restaurants never had the equity in mind in the ways in which we now want to. Society has changed their ideas on what they think paid labor should be. Now, there are union and labor workers and activists and organizers been talking about this shit for decades, and I give you all of your salutes. But to the rest of you all 
that have just gotten woke on this shit. I'm going to need you to sit the fuck back and read a little bit more and understand how difficult these situations are. Because not everybody wants to say fuck everything. Not everybody wants to now come after the very people they're claiming they want to liberate. You can't do that. I think about those workers at Milk and Honey in West Philly. I think about what happened to them. I think about what happened to the people at V Street. I think about what happened to them. And I think about the other people that might lose their jobs if a restaurant shuts down and closes down because people want to argue what they should be paid. But these are the same people that are complaining, but they don't want to step up and pay. They don't want to step up and tip more. They don't want to do any of these things. They want to go to a nice high-end restaurant, just eat an appetizer, drink a cocktail on the table by a server and a waiter, don't want to pay them more than what they deserve, and they don't want to do it. So if we can't even fucking do it, how do we expect corporations to? It's, 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 it's baffling to me. And everybody wants to make stereotypes. And this is the thing that pissed me off the most, was the stereotypes. I'm going to tell everybody this. You do not have to interject black people's issues and trauma to try to justify your decisions. Cheap people aren't necessarily black people and black people aren't die default cheap. See, the problem is we've been conflated ideas around money and wealth and how black people spend money. And now we've become drinking this racial pathology on what it means to struggle, what it means to be connected to social justice. There was so much conflation and projection this week that just really turned me off. Let's be very fucking clear. Black and brown people are saving these industries. We are saving the fashion industry. We're saving the food travel agency. Black dollars does not equal what people assume. We spend more money on beauty products than many demographics in this country. Don't confuse our ratio to poverty, our ratio to other hardships as being a lack of engagement with the society. We are more likely going to spend money in ways that others don't. There are rich people out here that are more fucking cheap than your average person that's working class or middle class. We travel, we spend more on movie tickets. We do so much, okay? I don't know where this comes from. If there was more black people that had the consumer, if if there were more people that were non-black that had the consumer habits of black people, our economy would be rocket right now. Our economy would be soaring right now. Black people, in spite of everything, is going to want to feel joy because of our lived experiences. These stereotypes about what people can't afford, what they can't afford. You know, I mean, let's be clear. Poor people, people that's impoverished, right? They could never afford to go to Steak 48. Whether that meant getting an appetizer or whether it meant wearing a suit, they could never go. These, like, let's be very clear. Let's be clear. They could never go. So this argument of I'm thinking of the poor people, you're not thinking of the poor people. To even have a conversation about poor people in State 48, it's not there. But let's just take it all the way back to the basics. Okay? Let's go back to the basics. We are living in a capitalistic society. Do I like capitalism? No, I hate that this is what we've had to deal with. But unfortunately, capitalism is currently the currency of America. And we're not going to abolish capitalism over fucking night. 
So everybody partakes in fucking capitalism because it is the it is the system to which we operate by fucking default. Can we minimize how much of we our gross capitalism we do? Sure. But nonetheless, we are participating in it and stop shaming people because of things that they cannot change. We was born into this shit. And many of us probably will die into this shit because I don't see how they're going to fundamentally turn it around in the, at this time. Can it happen? Let's hope. But we can't even fucking agree on anything. But let's just say, let's just keep it one. We live in a capitalistic society. What that means by default is that people yield labor to value, value to wealth, wealth into getting access to things that other people cannot fucking get. That's just what it boils down to. And we know that racism and everything else makes all this shit more complicated because a black person can work twice as hard and get twice as less than a white person that does the same amount of work. So, so race conflates this and complicates these things. Unfortunately, black people are always being told by white people and anarchists and everybody else about what these systems are like we don't fucking know. We know. But we don't have allies trying to make it better for us institutionally. So black people by default have to endure living in a society, in a country, in a world that keeps acting like they give a fuck about us, but don't show it any other time. Spend more time being paternalistic, tell us what we can't do in systems that don't work for us anyway. We, we deal with this, this hypocrisy. We deal with this, this these, these lies. We deal with all of this fuckery and fraudness. And it's just disgusting, right? But here's the thing, right? We live in that. Black people live in poverty. Not poverty as in poverty as in like what out of house, but living in a situation collectively where generational wealth does not exist across the board for us in the same ways as anyone else. We know this. Knowing that our labor and our work is never going to be paid per dollar, per pound in the same ways of other groups. We know this all fucking ready. And yet we persist. Because it's all we can do. And to not engage in capitalism, why is the onus always put the most marginalized? The fight should really be put up to white people. White people who hold the power and the wealth and equity in this country. Rich white people. Right? People who, who, who benefit disproportionately. Those people. First. But we try to equivocate things. And we have to stop that. There's so much. Just so much, man. Like, here's the thing. When I was growing up, because people out here were talking reckless about my upbringing, trying to assume things. I went to Penn on a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship. I didn't pay for Penn. I didn't come from money. I just worked my ass off in high school and was fortunate enough that I was able to, you know, get into a school like Penn. But I went to public school my entire life. My high school class was big as fuck. It was mostly black and brown kids. Shit was not always easy. But one thing about my mom is that she worked. I came from a working class family that eventually got to middle class status eventually. And she worked. But one thing about it is that she knew that raising some black boys that didn't know how to wear a suit properly, that didn't know which what, the difference between a table fork and a salad fork and didn't know the difference between a I mean, dinner fork and a salad fork, didn't know the, the difference between filet mignon and a ribeye, that... Our opportunities would be limited because we live in this racist society. She, she knew that. Is it fair? Was it right? No. But black people 
And, and black and brown people have to raise their kids in a world where they can survive and thrive. Respectability politics weren't put onto us because of the fact that it was supposed to make us better. It was put on us because that was the ideology that people had to think they could kids could survive. We know today that in some cases, it doesn't matter. But that was what parents had. That's the only way they can breathe, thinking that there would be some hope. Because what does it look like to be a black mother, a black father, a parent, or a big brother, and just tell your kid, shit, fuck it. Do whatever. Nothing matters. You're going to die anyway. That's not how humans work. Reality is that we don't have no control. But that's not the hope. That's not the humanness of us to have optimism. Optimism is a human trait. We all have it to some degree. Even when it doesn't make sense. People still have optimism in this fucking country. We still have optimism when we go to the polls and vote. Everything in history tells us that all these people are corrupt. That a two-party system is corrupt. That capitalism is killing us. That racism and white supremacy are, are incurable. That all of these things work against us. And if you really... Really want to be a fucking miserable motherfucker to black people. This is what you could do. You could say to them, do not go out to nice restaurants because you're participating in elitism and classism that will then wreck you. But then realizing that if you went to the steakhouse and didn't, you still was going to get fucked. But what was the difference between going to the steakhouse and eating me on versus not as a black person? Is that you got to experience this three-letter word, joy. That in the that in the fact that we can't control our lives, the things that make us feel good, the temptation, the, the, the things that give us a little bit of feelings, it's called joy. And to some people, they don't believe we should have time for any of those things because it's everything has to be fight the power. But if the most marginalized people can't be able to be imperfect or can't be able to learn different things or can't be able to indulge. Or can't be able to feel some level of those experiences without always having to be expected to fight for, for the shit that white people messed up. Then what becomes the point of living? What becomes the point of, of doing any of the things that we all are working for? Why get a check if all you have to fucking do is pay rent and pay bills? Aren't we not allowed to buy anything? Is everything problematic? Everything is problematic. And should we all be shamed and judged? Should anyone have any level of survivor's remorse because of what our what our, our ancestors dealt with, which makes us be able not to have experienced joy because somebody else did? Survivor's guilt, survivor's remorse. All of these things black people have to experience. And to those people that do indulge and do experience those things, why is it that chronic trauma, chronic suffering, it's the only way that people measure people's commitment to social justice. So because I do sometimes go out and spend over $100 on a stake, I'm disconnected because I'm supposed to just always forever be in a state of, of, of rage, in a state of skepticism, in a state of anger that will run me astray. Do you know how many activists have committed suicide, have suffered from mental health issues, have, have 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 completely felt fucked up because of how difficult this work is for them, how hard it is to maintain these expectations, how difficult it is for people to, to recognize these people are humans, not machines and robots. 
You're killing the fucking movement. You're killing the movement, some of you are. You're killing the fucking movement. Because you don't have nuance. Because you don't have grace. Because you don't recognize the differences between those who are grifting and those who are just living. You don't know the difference between people that are scamming and people that are just trying to to just live. You're faulting people for the most ridiculous things. You're calling people elitist. You're calling marginalized people, classes elitists, simply for engaging. Let me tell you something a friend of mine was saying earlier. If you believe having nice things, whatever nice means to you, right? Having nice things, whatever it means to you, is not automatically elitist or classist. I would argue, in my opinion, that it's when you have those things and you think you're better than other people. If you think that other people should not have those things in ways that are not sensible, right? When you believe that you're better than other people based on them, when you believe that only a certain group of people can have those things, those things fit into the classism elitism. And the problem is, is that we conflate race in the wrong ways. Black and brown people have always been going to fancy restaurants, even when they couldn't quote unquote afford them based on people's assumptions of what people should be spending their money with. I call it the Jordan phenomenon. Black people are told not to buy their kids Jordans all the time because those $300 shoes or $200 shoes, those, those kids, those kids shouldn't be spending their money on that. They should be spending their money on other things, right? I used to, when I was growing up, I used to hear people say that. And I used to agree with them. I used to think, yeah, these people should be spending money on other things. But then I realized to myself that whether they're in a long line waiting for a pair of $300 Jordans or in a long line waiting to try that new Popeye's chicken sandwich for $4, they're going to still be judged. Right? You got people like Jamel Monet saying that these black people in these long lines for the Popeye's chicken sandwiches should be in long lines ready to vote. And of course they did, didn't they? Same people that's judging these black kids, telling them they shouldn't be in long lines for Jordans, are the same ones who would criticize what school they go to if they go to college. Then it becomes, did you go to HBCU or did you go to a PWI, right? Black people can never fucking get a break. We can never do anything right based on society's metric. I get judged because I went to Penn, because I didn't go to an HBCU. And people assume that I was an elitist because I chose to go to a predominantly white school like Penn versus an HBCU. Well, let me explain to you why I chose to go to Penn. Penn gave me a fucking full ride. I did not want to be in college debt, okay? A lot of these HBCUs don't have that money, right, to give people full rides. They're getting better with it now, I hear, but at that time, they were not. And I wasn't going to call Sally Mae. And my family did not have the money to pay for me to go to college in that type of way. So no, I didn't go. It was a financial decision. And also, I wanted to be exposed to different things that I didn't know growing up. It was a different experience. So go judge your cat. Do that. And, and, get, and, and, and hold some fucking nuance for crying out loud. Because I just feel like there's some people that have used their own trauma, right? Because let's be clear what this is. This is trauma, right? People complain about 
you know, racism and wealth and these things and these issues, other black people, they're responding to trauma in their lives. They've dealt with a situation where they couldn't afford something. And that's valid and that's real. But don't let that trauma, don't reside in that trauma. Don't let that be what defines your perspective. Don't let it turn into bitterness and rage and anger towards other people that are black in your own community. There's a lot of intra-community violence happening because people have had unresolved trauma around sexuality, around wealth, around gender. And now we're fighting each other in ways that just don't make any sense. I mean, this week I was on a certain group. And I'm not even going to even shout out the Facebook group and discuss them because I'm getting a little sick of them myself. But there was a Facebook group where it was just some people that were just talking to me real left, y'all. And I was like, they really don't know who I am. And guess what? That's fine. But it's like, people are really saying some crazy shit. And I don't know where this shit is coming from. But then I had to take a step back and realize there are some people, the, the white supremacy has given, has done a number on us. We all have experienced it in ways. We all have had to confront anti-blackness within ourselves. And some people are not understanding that. And everybody's got their own journey. Everybody's trying to come to a place of understanding themselves, understanding this other around the world. I am learning new things every day, every fucking week. And what I'm learning, what I've been learning lately is that what we have to remember is that this idea that there has to be chronic suffering in order for black and brown people to show up in these, these spaces, we have to abolish that. Because if you look at the history of the civil rights movement and our movements, there's always been different types of black people at different various levels. I mean, let's be real. Everybody say college is not for everybody. But unfortunately, in this capitalist society, you have to have a law degree to be a lawyer. So we do need some brothers and sisters to be in college. We do need them getting law degrees so that they can be able to fight the system for us. We do need to have some black business owners that have equity, that can use that money equity in ways that can support the movement like they did back in the 1960s. There were black owned businesses that that put money and fed and supported the, the freedom fighters. We all need to be in this at different angles. We need black journalists. We need legends like Ida B. Wells back then today to have people like Aaron Haynes, myself, and Nicole Hannah-Jones fighting that fight. We need to have all of these different truth storytellers and creatives. And, and we need it because the movements have always needed all of us. It never could just be the most poor, the, the most uneducated. It can never thrive off of that. Yes, those people should be at the forefront and their voices, but everybody has a part. You can't tell me there's no role that I don't have to play in this movement as a journalist. I do, right? I do. But at the same time, I also have an identity. I also have my own voice. And I bring that to the table. And everybody has to do that. Without grifting, without stealing. Okay, let's be clear. But we've always had people like that. We've always had the clergy. We've always had the church. We've always had these different interfaith communities. We got to keep that going. That's how we get progress. We cannot just act like there's only one type of activist or organizer that, that needs to exist within this. If you do that, you fail. We fail. If you ostracize and mischaracterize other people in this movement, we will fail. Period. So I think people need to take a deep breath. Take one with me. Let it out. 
I'll say. All right. Speaking about things that are not I say like. So y'all know I covered Sean King getting sued. Sean King has been sued. Um, him, Larry Krasner's campaign, and the Real Justice Pack, which is what uh, Sean King co-founded. He co-founded the Real Justice Pack a couple years ago. Um, and now they're being sued for libel and slander. They're being sued by Carlos Vega, which of course is the, the DA, the former uh, assistant DA who got sued, who uh, ran against Krasner earlier, earlier in May, lost the election, got his ass blowed out. Okay, you know how they talk about landslide. It was a landslide defeat for him. Well, he has not stopped. He is pursuing and seeing a push his lawsuit against the Krasner campaign, against Sean King and the Real Justice Pact for slander libel. Now, why would I care what a what some people would describe a sore loser would think about this? It's not so for me, it's not so much about what it's not so much to me about what okay, so let me back this up. Vega is suing them because he's claiming that they made some false uh, claims about his his background as a DA. So for starters, he served for DA for many years, for over 25 years apparently. Um, Krasner, when Krasner got in office, Krasner fired him and fired a couple other veteran DAs. He sued Krasner in the past for age discrimination because he got fired. But back in his record, there's been accusations that he tried to get a man um, killed or put on, uh, you know, to try to you know, get a man killed or, or put through a sentencing process that would have given, would have not exonerated this innocent person. And there's a guy who they've been claiming in the price. Last name is Wright, the uh, man who who is in the, in the center of that story. But there was a lot of um, claims that was being made. And, um, you know, Vega has been adamantly pushing back against those allegations. And and they've been put out nonetheless from, from um, Sean King, who was pushing this... Um, you know, as a way to campaign for Krasner. Krasner was whatever. Uh, benefiting off of this buzz to help push the super PAC. The Real Justice PAC is a group that was funding um, Larry Krasner's campaign. Um, and they have had some trouble a couple of years ago, the last time he ran and whatnot. But for me, I looked into the lawsuit and there's details. There's some strong details about... The relationship between Sean King's pack, which is real justice, and Larry Krasner's campaign. And based off of it, it looks like there was a lot of I scratch your back, you scratch mine, quid pro quo type of stuff, according to the lawsuit, allegedly. And there's some there's some receipts in that lawsuit, and it was like 312 pages. And I read it like it was a Harry like it was the first Harry Potter book before we stopped fucking with J.K. Rowling. But it was it was heavy. It, it was it was a lot being um, said about this lawsuit uh, about them. So I looked into some of this. Um, Sean King's pack and, and Philly DA uh, scratched backs the suit claims. This is um, a piece I wrote for the Daily Beast that came out last week. And there's a lot that was said. Um, I interviewed both. The Real Justice Pact's attorney, and I also interviewed Krasner's uh, campaign spokesperson about this, uh, about a lot of these allegations that was being made. But basically, there was allegations of money laundering. Um, they were saying that um, a lot of stuff. I'll, I'll read one of the quotes I said. Um, 
that Vegas suit alleges that despite being previously fined, Real Justice PAC and Krasner's campaign continue to coordinate to get him reelected to a second term in 2021. There was a guy named Brandon Evans who was once again hired as Krasner's campaign manager, and the Real Justice PAC and Sean King again boosted his campaign. According to a lawsuit, quote, Real Justice PAC continued to violate Philadelphia Code by coordinating donations split evenly between the Krasner campaign and Real Justice, but used exclusively to benefit the re-election of Krasner. The lawsuit also claims that the Political Action Committee in turn used such campaign funding to keep Brandon Evans on payroll, along with the PAC's co-founder, Sean King and Becky Bond. Yeah, y'all, it was deep. It was heavy. Another part that I want to just bring out of this was that according to Krasner's most recent campaign finance report, Real Justice reported $44,000 in total monetary contributions and receipts during the April 5th to 30th reporting period. In turn, the lawsuit alleges that, quote, Real Justice used the money received from the Krasner campaign to lauder funds to local Philadelphians and their PAC to pay for their public endorsements of D.A. Krasner. Okay, y'all. Campaign finance records did show that elected officials such as Philadelphia Council Member Jamie Gautier and Pennsylvania State Representative Joanna McClinton received between $5,000 and $6,500 from Real Justice PAC during the same time they publicly endorsed Krasner at a public campaign event in late April. Now, this is for context. Krasner did not get the Philadelphia Democratic Party's endorsement as an incumbent, which may have motivated him to seek more public support from local elected officials. During the same reporting period, the Krasner campaign paid $91,000 to the Social Practice LLC, also co-founded by Real Justice PAC co-founder Rebecca Bond and operating from the same San Francisco address as Real Justice PAC. So y'all, follow the money. I think there's some interesting meat here. I mean, let's be clear. This is a libel defamation suit. So a lot of this isn't going to impact. Um, I don't know how... I don't know if the libel suit against Sean King is strong. I do feel like, in my opinion, some of that stuff is credible. Um, if, if Vega can prove it as a public a public figure, if he can prove his case, he might be able to... This might hurt. So we're going to see what's going to happen. We're, we're going to see what's happened. We're still keeping our eye on this case. Um, but, you know, this man who's been alleged of grifting, man, he stay he stay on the bullshit, y'all. He stay on the bullshit. That, that, that's all I got to say. You know, um, it, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. So, other tea that came out following this activism trend. Um, there's been a lot of talk. Um, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, Khan, which you all remember, I talked about this. Okay, so it's not like you all have not heard this in my episode, but guess what? Here's an update. She is stepping down from the organization. She announced recently, um, last week, that she is stepping down as executive director, okay? And she is, of course, the co-founder of Black, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which also was co-founded by Alicia Garza and um, Tomei Opal. Opal Tomei, sorry. Um, so here is this information. 
she revealed that at the end of 2019, she had stepped back from the organization, but people within the BLM um, group, Black Lives Matter movement, asked her to come back during last summer's uprising. That was in 2020, the summer uprisings. Um, she says on her YouTube channel, she, I feel excited for me and my next journey. You know, she said that she, quote, I really had to think about it. Like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. I love the work. And so, yes, I came back and I've been here and I have, and it was always supposed to be interim. And so now it is my time. So she thanked people. You know, she was very happy. The press has, it's been complicated. You know what I'm saying? The, the press has, it's been a lot um, about the movement. So people have framed it to be, Good stuff. So in 2017, it became the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Now, you know, Black Lives Matter really started when the hashtag Black Lives Matter went viral um, after one of the co-founders, Alicia Garza, created the hashtag in, 20, in 2013. Um, and Opal Tometi, sorry, Tometi, I mispronounced her last name, and Alicia Garza co-founders with Colors. Um, and that happened. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people are saying that it appears that she is stepping down immediately now, coming after the fire she faced for having all these multi-million dollar, this millions of dollars of property she owned that was in Atlanta and in um, in, in California. And there's a lot of, in, in, in predominantly white neighborhoods, there's a lot of conversation, speculation around that. She claims that that's all coming from the right wing media. But I will be here to tell you as someone who's not a part of the right wing media, that there has been a lot of progressives and black activists on the ground, organizers and journalists who are not a part of that machine that also raise some eyebrows at some of those some of those those details and facts and findings. So I don't know if she's leaving because of that, but that just is interesting that less than a month from all that scrutiny, she has now decided to 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 set sunset it. Maybe it's because it's the one year of George Floyd. Who knows? But there's been a lot said in the press about it. And you know, we'll see. If anything more will come out. But I just want to update y'all on that. Other things that's been going down lately. Um, of course, of course, one of our favorite alleged grifters, uh, Tamika Mallory. Of course, she had to do something for George Floyd. So on Sunday, there was a commemorative concert for George Floyd in Houston, which, of course, I was just exiting Houston when this happened, but they've decided that they wanted to turn around and throw this event for George Floyd. And I mean, by all means, I, I am here for it, but I'm not here for it with the people that they have on the roster. So what is it that we do? I mean, I don't understand. Every time someone dies, there's a lot of interesting stuff. You know what I'm saying? Very interesting. And I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Something's weird. Some something's really weird. I don't know. I, I just it's just the it's 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 just the it's just the <sighs> it's the hustle for me. I mean, this concert was in Houston. I did not go to it, of course, but there was a lot of buzz around this concert. But it just gives me Brie BQ all over again. Remember when last summer Tamika Mallory with her group Until Freedom, they did this whole um, story about, I mean, they did this whole like event around Brianna, which 
was called Brianna Khan. And it just seemed very grifty and problematic and just just done in way that the flyers was what really annoyed me about it because it was all these A-listers and Brianna is faded to the background and just looked like a hustle. And it's just too much going on over there in that crew. Um, mind you, it is noted that Brianna's family did support the event. But I also feel at the same time, what are ways that organizers, other people can show up to support these families that does not put them in positions to have to be grateful for whatever is given to them? Because at the same time, I think that we have families that are grieving, right? To some degree, they are open to any support and visibility. But I think it's up to organizers and these people who claim to be activists or whatever they claim to be, that they should be sensitive and thoughtful about how they choose to show up to support these families, especially when they're in these families are in vulnerable situations, right? So I think that I'm never going to fault families that are grieving. But I think that it's up to organizers that if you, you know, like... Don't censor yourself in this. Why do you have flyers with your face on it and your name on it? And you you know, it's just so tacky. And I just thought that this was tacky. Like I'm seeing all these people's faces on this damn flyer. I mean, George Floyd is on the on the front flyer too. But like this shit is so tacky. And mm-mm. 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 Someone said on Twitter that I feel like a lot of these people have good intentions, but always fail on the execution and impact. If I'm killed, I don't want a concert. I don't want to be on your club fire. I don't want a Gen Con, says a woman named Jen the Tutor. Someone else said, um, it's a no for me. I'm not judging his family and loved ones participation or support. And I know he was a musician and I know it celebrates his life. But there's a fine line between appreciation and commodification, and this crosses it for me, says Robert Brown, who's at Truth Toad 8 on Twitter. And Jen the Truth is at Jen the Tutor. I'm sorry, at Jen the Tutor, who also told the truth. So it's a lot of weird stuff that's been happening. Um, and there's stuff like the George Floyd Ensemble is what they call some of the groups. And it's just a lot of weird um. Thing. So apparently Major, Stacey Abrams, Trey the Truth, Tamla Man, all these people uh, showed up um, as well. Wanted to say this before I get into my final thoughts. Um, this Black Wall Street situation, y'all, is messy. I don't know if you all heard, but it was supposed to be a John Legend event with, with Stacey uh, Abrams um, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, to recognize the commemoration of the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa, the Black Wall Street Massacre, which I talked about a little bit earlier today. Um, that event was a hot mess, apparently, in the fact that they have to not, they didn't do the event because allegedly, based on reports I was seeing from NBC News, there was conversations that the family wanted to get a million dollars. These survivors requested a million dollars, even though they were already previously offered 100000 and that there was new demands for a $50 million uh, reparations fund or whatever for family. Where did that come from? And I respect these survivors, and they matter, but what? What? What are we talking about? What are we talking about? 
what, what are we talking about? So that was a little traumatic and dramatic and a lot. But in the midst of trauma, these are the things that we, we often see. And it's so sad because it's like, wow, what, what what's going on? You know? So it's, you know, I just think it's a lot to consider. Just saying. Um, mm, 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 mm. Oh, let me get this out the way before I forget. So there was people that was messaging me about this situation that happened at Philly Weekly. I hate talking about Philly Weekly. But Philly Weekly is some ramshank little blog publication Philly. They did a stupid contest um, basically saying that, you know, they were going to give a prize to people who guessed how many homicides or deaths there were going to be between now and when Krasner got elected um, or if Krasner got elected by the general DA's race. And of course, it was making a shot at the overwhelming number of homicides and deaths that we've had in Philadelphia this year to gun violence. Um, people were offended. It was very offensive as fuck. It was very problematic as fuck, clearly. And they really want the controversy. And they even doubled down by making a statement the next day about how people were upset about what they said and then put up a graphic talking about how people should be just as upset these politicians and whatnot and redirecting the conversation. Facts, but fuck you, right? Here's the issue. Here's the issue. A year ago, Philly Weekly, right, used to be this, used to, before the pandemic, Philly Weekly used to be this alt-weekly publication that was, the editor of the publication was a black man. His name is Kurt Grabio. Very smart guy. Very, very great guy. He's not the inquirer doing digital stuff. But at the time, right, he was the editor there. Great content. It was a very progressive publication, very diverse. Um, you know, decent, decent coverage, good stuff across the board. Um, they got to new ownership and that ownership wanted to slant the publication away that made it more right wing, super conservative. They wanted to be the conservative voice in Philadelphia. They felt like there was not enough conservative outlets and voices in Philadelphia. Um, and they wanted to be that. That was their niche. They wanted to fuel this because the conservatives and media in Philadelphia lived in the comment section, right? Christine Flowers, Stubakowski, those people no longer work for the uh, for, for, for the Philadelphia um, Inquirer or write for them, right? They're, they're out here in wonder places, but they're no longer representing the brand, right, of, this, of these mainstream publications. Of course, as you know, Philadelphia Magazine's conservative angst that they used to have back in the day, that's pretty much non-existent as much either, right? Hello, knock knock. I'm here, editor at large. Um, but like a lot of these places, the, those voices are not really there as much anymore. They're, they're, you know, you know, we'll see what the Inquirer doing. I heard, I heard some things over there. They might have a black conservative and their editorial team that's going to be on the editorial board coming up. Wait and see. That's what I heard. But anyway, there's no, there has not been a, a strong right wing um, publication for good reason in Philadelphia. Well, Philly Weekly got re-owned and it became that. So for people who actually was reading them, which clearly no one was until now, um, they've always been doing some very problematic things on their on, on, on their editorial content. They really hate Krasner. They hate Kenny. And they really want to fuel this very anti, you know, Democrat, anti-liberal, anti-progressive notion. A lot of the stuff they do really fuels the interest of a lot of these, you know, far end, you know, the basically 
if the nasty comment sections of most of these major publications in Philadelphia had an audience, this would be their audience. So, you know, they created Reddit Live, basically. And in creating that, they created a publication that was super polarizing. And that's what happened. They created a publication that was that. So when I heard this happen, I knew the source. And I said, oh, that's the Philly Fox News talking this shit. Okay, well, y'all go say something about that. Like, I'm not losing my mind. But there were people that kept bugging me, again, on my vacation. Like, oh, what do you think? What do you think? What do I think of it? I don't think of it. It's the Fox News of Philly. The end. Stop reading them if you are reading them. Who gives a fuck what they think? Real journalists do not work there. But since then, there's been these public protests and all these things. I'm just like, do y'all know who y'all yelling at? Do y'all know who y'all arguing with? I mean, do anyone know what this what this is? Clearly not. But when people are mad, people are mad. So, I just feel like it's yelling at the Fox News of Philly. Which, yelling at Fox News isn't going to make Fox News go away. If anything, it's going to give them more press and attention. They have gotten more digital traffic off of this scandal than they probably have had in previous weeks. They are running this to the bank. Because that's what these far right, these far right, publications and media outlets and digital spaces do. They want traffic. They want to do something that's going to provoke people, piss people off. I got so much other more important shit on my mind, on my list to worry about than some stupid shit with this irrelevant ass blog. Next case. All right. So, into these cool things. I watched the finale of Mary Easttown. I just wanted to tell you all that I need several Emmy nominations. They need to be nominated for Best uh, mini series, right? Limited series or whatever. They didn't even nominate for that. Kate Winslet, honey, g- give her the Emmy now. C- can I fill out the application? Can I just submit the whatever the request is? But Kate Winslet, if Kate Winslet does not get the Emmy, I, I feel like there's only one person that could beat her. But I don't know if that's going to be, if they're going to put in the same category. But I can see Makala Cole if she gets nominated for I will destroy you. If that happens, she will win and Kate won't win. Maybe. But either of them too. But but if if if, if Michaela is a different category, um Kate just Kate ate. Kate ate that. Okay. The Kate's never disappoint. The Kate Blanchett's well Kate Beckingsdale, she disappoints. But Kate Winslet and Kate Blanchett, they're killing it. Kate Blanchett last year and Mrs. America was thriller, but Regina King and Watchmen was better. And Regina King won another Emmy. Her fourth Emmy, I think she's won. She's won two for American Crime. She won another one for another movie, uh, another crime show special. And then she won one for Watchmen. Yeah. Four Emmys. Woman has talent. Four Emmys. And an Oscar now. She got an Oscar for If Bill Street Could Talk. Regina King is killing it. Talk about aging up in talent. Like Meryl Streep. Like just and Viola Davis. Stellar. So Kate Winslet deserves to get it. I would love to see her get it. Um, also, Best Supporting Actress, man. It was some great supporting performances on this show. Um, if you haven't seen this on HBO Max, it's called Mayor of Easttown. It's based like a Delco-esque vibe. The accents are strong. Um, Gene Smart is so good in this. 
But that another woman, Juliana Hogson or whatever, she is fabulous. The one who plays Lore, oh my God, just great. So many great things. I won't tell the show, but that ending, who saw that? I didn't see the killer. I did not. Listen, what's so good about this show is that every, like, even at the finale, I thought it was two other people who could have killed the person in the, movie, in the show. And even up until the final ending, you find out, like, the last, you know, whatever who killed. I was like, they did it? What? The whole time. The whole time. Now I have to rewatch it and try to see if I can loop in some pieces. But, yo, what a finale. What a shocker. So good. So good. Okay. Um, Pose. Finale of Pose. The series finale of Pose is next week. I'm so sad. It's coming to an end after three seasons. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. This episode, um, Angel and Lil Poppy got married. And there was some theatrics and some fireworks, but they finally got married, right? Let me tell y'all something. I just have to say this. I've been watching like shows that do weddings, and I'm like looking at like now because I'm getting married. I'm like looking at all these like, oh, do we gotta do that? Do we do this? Do we do that? Looking at all these little details, I'm like, oh, that'd be cute if we did it this way, kind of thing. But also, okay, for those who really been watching Pose, uh, Ryan Murphy just had to fucking Ryan Murphy it. So in the wedding scene, right, where there is the part where they're doing the verses and all this stuff, they decide that Lil Poppy does, uh, he's trying to figure out how he wants to turn his verse or his wedding vow into something he's never done before. And I'm watching this and I'm excited for him, like excited for them. Y'all, Lil Poppy decides that in his vow, he wants to sing to Angel. He sings. His singing is terrible. It's terrible. I was like, why did y'all ruin? This whole moment was beautiful. It was emotional. Angel's, you know, vow to, to Poppy was cute. Why is he singing? He cannot sing. He is the cutest thing since sliced bread. This scene is beautiful. The little boy is sitting there. Everybody's there. Why is he singing? And he is singing one of the most corniest songs in pop music. He is singing... I swear, from the moon to the sun. He is singing that, y'all. And got the whole group at the wedding singing it too. But the vocals are not good. They're not. And he's singing this at this wedding and she's all into it and everybody's acting like it's touching. I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? I said, oh, Ryan, you just had to make it a glee moment. Ryan Murphy's one of the co-creators of this show. And I just knew that this was his idea. Whose idea was this? This is corny as fuck. I was so annoyed. I was like, I was so into it. I was getting in my emotional bag. And then he breaks out with these vocals that are just terrible. They're just, they were just not good. He just can't sing. You'll see the scene. It's still cute. But I was like, damn, this is not, this is, why did we do this? Why is this too campy? It's campy enough, but this got too campy. So we'll see what they do in the finale. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to miss Billy Porter and his incredibleness. All right. So I've had a lot of good news. Finally, some stuff I've been able to reveal. Some of you all went crazy last week. I got elected to be board chairman of Philadelphia Community Access Media. So I'm now going to be the chairman of the board for Philly Cam. 
which I've been on the board for five years. And so getting elected to this position has been awesome. I can't wait to serve my term. The love that everyone gave me for this position is awesome. So yes, you've heard this correctly. I'm currently the president of the Philadelphia Association, Association of Black Journalists. And I'm also the board chairman of the Philadelphia Community Access Media. So, you know, I'm out here in these media streets and this, and this media leader, leadership trying to do some things. So I'm really happy about that. And um, just happy to get voted by the board and the, by the people. So Chairman Ernest Owens here to save the day. Also, other good news that I wanted to make sure I get out there. I And this is also major news before the other major news, but I have to sit on my hands. So I am currently signed to Collective Speakers. They are, they're one of the top speakers bureaus in the country. They're very, they have a long, diverse list of very progressive speakers um, of, of talent. I mean, they have Taraji P. Henson, Common, Chuck D., Ice-T, Angelica Ross, um, April Rain, who created the uh, Oscar So White hashtag, uh, Frederick, who um, who has that really big New York Times bestseller book, The um, the Black Friend. Uh, Frederick Joseph is his name. Um, he's super talented. So many other great people. Uh, Blair Bonney, uh Sally Kahn, and me now. And it's great to be a part of a speakers bureau because now the the, the girl is booked and bothered, uh, unbothered, and I'm getting booked now. So I'm excited about this because I'm getting booked for speaking engagements um, now. But but I have representation now, which is important. So a couple of weeks ago, let me just say this: shout out to Blair Armani, you know why, girl. Thank you so much for looking out for me. A couple of weeks ago, I put on Facebook and on Twitter, and and on Instagram. Um, that I got paid five times. I got paid six times the amount I was offered for a speaking engagement recently. And I put that on there because I was just like surprised, one. But I was realizing that I had been underpaid for speaking engagements. Now, for starters, I just recently started getting a lot of speaking engagements for the past year. So for me, speaking engagement money was always like, it's what I use to pay for my wedding. It's what I've used to, you know, get go out and do things. But it was never my bread and butter. My bread and butter um, has always been writing and media production and what I do through my company. But speaking has been picking up in ways that it could literally be another job within itself. And so in doing that, I've realized that I was not aware of what I should have been getting paid. And I didn't have people that was negotiating um, those things for me or booking me for things, looking for me for things. And so um, I put this out there just on social media about this experience. And I didn't talk about all the things, but like even talking about the fact that people have been trying to exploit me as recently as last week. And I'm going to get to that. But like I need representation. So a, a friend of mine on social, you know, there are people that were like, oh, you need to get a, You need to get an agent. You need to get this. And I'm looking like, well, where the fuck are the agents? Who going to help? That person didn't, which is fine. That's all right. But like, come on. But somebody else reached out to me and said, hey, I saw that post. You need some, you know, I got an agency I'm a part of. Um, let me connect you with this person because you definitely have the talent, you have the chop. So I had a meeting, got a meeting scheduled with this person, um, this the agent, my agent, his name is Sean. Um, had a conversation with him. And basically, you know, we hit it off really well. Um, did some paperwork, sent some information. And um, I'm on the roster. 
So now if you're a major company, a group that's looking to book me professionally for, for paid speaking endeavors, of course, you contact my agent. And if you um on Instagram, you know, my link tree, I have the bio. There is a section where you can click book Ernest Owens for speaking engagements now. And that would direct you to my page, all the information to book me and all the details. So I had to do this because y'all, it was, it was hard out here. I mean, I was getting offers, but like, I just realized like I was definitely getting underpaid and I was also being exploited and I didn't realize that, but honestly, I don't feel too bad because you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's the thing that I learned in this process is you don't know what you don't know. So I didn't know until I had a conversation, but you also can't keep your mouth quiet, right? Closing eyes don't get fed. If you know something, you don't know something. Or, you know, whatever the case is, talk to people who got those things. So if you see a person that got a thing that you're interested in and you're cool with them and, be, and you're respectful, reach out to that person. Or sometimes that person can look for an opportunity for you because I didn't even think to go to people who were signed. You know, I just just was in my world doing me, you know. But but also, too, I didn't know that I could be able to get signed or something like that based on it. But my credentials and the work I have... Um, made me a, a, an ideal candidate. Like everybody can't get signed to a speakers bureau. Um, you know, you have to have some some credits and some things in your belt. But that just worked for me, and it was awesome. And so it's going to take me to another level, and um, I'm looking forward to it. So you know, I'm proud of that. That was some. That's some major news, and it comes off of the heels of a situation I experienced last week where I got this 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 group this this um woman representing this company reached out to me during Pride for Pride Month because you know June is Pride Month, y'all. Y'all know it. Here come here come all the crazy stuff. Here come all the razzle dazzle. Well, they hit me up because they wanted me to come speak at a particular event, and I said to them, "Thank you. You know, I appreciate all this. this all sounds great. Is there an honorarium? That's what I ask now. When if you come to me, ask me for a speaking engagement. If you ain't talking about the event being paid, I'm gonna be the first to ask. The guy's gonna determine if I say yes or no because I've been exploited out here in these streets, in these speaking streets." So they told me all this. For first, let me back to them. They told me all this about their company, how they work with Fortune 500 companies, how they got all this diversity, equity, and this is about pride and diversity and inclusion and all this shit. So they told me all this stuff. Something in my mind, like when you're a big company representing other big brands, and you're doing this diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, you got coin coin for the, for the, for the girls. You, you got some money for the people. Well, they said to me, she's the, the, the woman, the representative, she said to me, oh, well, we don't have... Um, honorarium we we don't um we don't have money unfortunately we don't have any in our budget or something she said along those lines but um if you're if you're um if you ain't are able to do it let me know or if you're if you're if you're burnt out or, or or can't be able to do it or something like that let me know and i was thinking like burnt out like i don't have the ability to do it so fucking disrespectful and second of all my whole thing is it's not about being burnt out or exhausted or anything it's simple. You're asking me as a black queer person to be a part of a panel to speak on diversity, equity, inclusion, and you're doing this during a month that is celebrating the revolution that advanced people like me in this country. And you're asking me to do this for a company that has that works with other major companies for free. What the fuck do they do that at? So I had to say no. I declined. I said to them, um, absolutely not. And to be clear, I'm I'm not doing it because I don't think 
disrespects the actual holiday. Like you're asking me to do this labor for free. So I said, no. You know, old me, you would have thought to myself, damn, this is sad. Damn, this is, I'm being mean. Maybe I should do it. But then I said, wait a minute. You know what I'm saying? I said, I said, but look at this. Um, I shouldn't be feeling guilty because I'm not willing to sacrifice my labor and my work in this type of way. So I have to take a step back and, and say to myself, I'm being too hard on myself. No, I should really take some time to to enjoy something. So, no, I, I don't feel bad about saying no. And I'm going to start saying no when people try to waste my time. You know, if it was for the kids, like I love children, public school events, stuff like that, career days for kids. Oh, I will always do stuff like that. But grown ass adults just want to hear what my black queer voice has to say on my time digitally. Nah, good on that. Eh. So in wrapping this up, I have some other good news coming soon. Cannot say much about it right now because stuff has to be cleared. But there's a really, a really, really big, big announcement. But this, everything is leading up to this bigger announcement. So I'm kind of taking my time and just going through the motions. But I have some bigger, bigger news to share. And June is going to be the month for it to happen. I thought May was because May was looking like, but you know, in this business, you can't predict as much. But I would predict that June will be the final month where this big, huge announcement will be. And when it happens... Oh, my life will never be the same again. But, you know, you just got to be patient, right? Next week, I start teaching. Um, I'm teaching a writing class, of course, as you all know. Um, I just got my books that I'm going to be assigning to my students. Some of you all who listen to this podcast, I've already been notified that you've been approved for my course. So you'll be Get a chance to learn with me. Hopefully you like me. Hopefully you don't think I'm not a tough teacher. I don't think I'm a tough instructor or teacher. I think I'm just somebody who is like, look, I can only make this great if you make this great. I'm that teacher. Like, you know how people have teachers where they're like, look, look, we're going to have fun. We're going to do work. It's only going to be as good as you are. Like, chill. Like, I'm not trying to fail people, but I'm also not trying to make people not learn either, right? Because there's a fine line there. But this is going to be fun. People are registering for my class and everything is getting set. So I'm super excited. And so until then, we'll probably get back. Maybe I'll do an episode later this week. I'll, de- I'll, I'll determine. But I just wanted to just do a catch up because there was so much stuff that was going on so we can just all get together. So until then, stay fabulous, stay well, and uh, be back. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.